people who, who realize what your career has been about, they know that Don't when people start. talk about the great rock guitars, they're talking about Jimmy Page, and they talk about Hendrix, and they talk, of course, about Eric Clapton, and Eddie Van Halen's name is somewhere on that list. But when people I'd hear... i one thing, I'm the youngest guy out of that bunch. No. <laughs> when did you first hit upon your guitar playing technique, the tap technique, instead uh, of using... Hit upon you know, it. When did you hit yeah. upon that? Uh, Fretboard, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was probably around 74, 75. And uh, I used to like, when we used to play the local clubs, my brother told me, turn around, don't let them see how you're doing it. You know, <laughs> until I swear, you know how. Yeah. <laughs> Did everybody else do pick and strum? And then you, yeah, yeah. until? And uh, see, I never, I never took lessons or nothing, so I kind of wrote my own book, you know. I just kind of said, hey, that's kind of fun, you know. And uh, yeah, I used to turn around, you know, when I did my guitar solo, because there were other cats out there yeah. that were already signed, you know, had record deals, and they were trying to figure out how I was doing it, you know. It's okay, I do what I want if I choose. I can take the fall. Hey now. Hey now. The saddest of hey nows as we say goodbye tonight on the sportscasters to Eddie Van Halen, 65 years old, passed away today. And I heard the news on Twitter, which, you know, as I hate Twitter more and more and dislike it more and more, I realize that one of the reasons that I've soured on Twitter is that's where I find all the bad news. You know, anything that's gone wrong in the last 10 years, I found out about, it seems like, on Twitter. I remember waking up one morning and opening Twitter and finding out that a plane had crashed in Clarence outside of Buffalo. And it was the first time I ever heard about something like that on Twitter. And it was one of those times where I really realized the power of it, too, when I just realized uh, how much news could be spread and how important it would be. And as the bad news has mounted on there, as I've learned more and more uh, bad news on there, I like it less and less. But forget Twitter. Let's focus on Eddie Van Halen. And one last thing will be about him. So we'll just briefly touch on here the fact that I opened Twitter I found out that Eddie had passed away and the first thing I did I realized it was between 2 and 4 Eastern and Eddie Trunk would be on Sirius and I turned the app on right away and listened to Eddie because Eddie Trunk to me is the voice of rock and roll in terms of news and analysis and what he says matters and I knew that his perspective would help me uh, organize my thoughts about Eddie and we'll get into those in one last thing but I wanted to say right off the top uh, rest in peace to Eddie Van Halen we don't change uh, state of love and trust out of the intro often uh, but we did today for the death of an absolute legend it is uh, season number 10, and I believe this is the 20th episode of the season. 
in which obviously has been a really strange year. Um, you know, I started out in January and very quickly had to have surgery. And that cost us a few weeks. And then when the pandemic started, it seemed like at first guests were everywhere. And then it seemed like just before the return of sports, maybe that last month before sports came back, people kind of got into other projects. There wasn't a lot to talk about. It became hard to book for a while. And now that the fall has started, it seems like guests are everywhere and we've had a bunch of shows uh in the last while but this is uh like i said season 10 episode 20 and it's a good podcast today a really good one i'm excited about it what we're gonna do uh first after the intro here is we are going to bring on uh blake j harris and jonah tullis uh blake was on before a few times. You might know his name. He's the author of a book called Console Wars, which was once the book club book of the year. And uh, Blake has become a friend of mine. We've talked quite a bit over the years. Uh, we spent a lot of time over the years talking on email and on text and just kind of really becoming friends. And that whole time, he's been working on a documentary for Console Wars. Uh, which was produced by Seth Rogen and his partner, Evan. Well, Blake is a co-director with his partner, Jonah. And Jonah and Blake will join us on the podcast. It's Tulis. I know I might have said Tullis the first time, but it's Jonah Tulis and Blake J. Harris. After the intro, will join us to talk about console wars, which of course refers to Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo, an unbelievable story, a great book, and a great documentary, which is available to watch on CBS All Access. And Jonah and Blake will give more information about exactly what that means in the interview. It's a fantastic interview, and I'm looking forward to you hearing it. Uh, then we'll update the book club. There's two new books in the book club I have to tell you about. And then after that, uh, it's an interview with a guy named Jason Cole. Uh, and Jason's book, Elway, A Relentless Life, has been a part of the book club. So we'll finish that one off and get that off the list as we make room for the two new books. Last episode, number 19, Jeff Perlman was on. And I got really good feedback on the email and asked a few people who emailed if they thought Jeff Perlman was the best recurring guest. And it seemed like the answer was unanimously yes. Uh, he's certainly in the upper echelon for me, right up there with uh, Richard Deitch and Jeff Passan. And honestly, Rich, uh, Dave Damaschek used to be the best guest, but he stopped coming on for whatever reason. You'd have to ask him. I have almost no idea what that's about. Uh, but thanks to Jeff Perlman, don't forget his book, Three Ring Circus, is available now. It's about the show, the Kobe and Shaq Lakers. And if you didn't hear him here, just turn on your podcast app. He's probably somewhere as he's literally doing every show as he always does a self-proclaimed book whore. Uh, but that's the show today. It is Blake J. Harris, Jonah Tulis, and then Jason Cole. And we'll talk John Elway with him. And then one last thing we will remember and say goodbye to Eddie Van Halen. Quickly, before we get into the interviews, I wanted to talk about Howard Stern for a minute. 
Uh, of course, in the intro there, I said, hey, now, and I mentioned last episode uh, how Howard Stern uh, was is obviously the information, uh, the inspiration for Hey Now. And there's a new article on Bloomberg today, and Bloomberg is reporting that Stern is close to re-signing with Sirius. He originally signed with them back in 2005 or late 2004 uh, to start in January of 2006. And he signed five-year deals. So he signed three already. This would be the fourth. And I would assume another five-year deal. The reporting... Bloomberg is that it would be $120 million uh, for Stern per year, which is huge money. And this is the first time I honestly thought that he might retire. He has been threatening to retire as far back as like 1993, 1994. And most of the time he did it as a negotiating move to try to further his leverage with, you know, Intercom or whoever he was negotiating with at the time. Uh, But this time around, I thought it might be the end for Howard. He has been broadcasting from his home since the start of the pandemic. And I'm sure that will be the case for a while. Now, I don't think Sirius XM is ready to just tell him that he can make $120 million to do the show that he's doing from his home because it is not as good as the show that he does in the studio, which, of course, is not as good uh, as the show was from 1984 when, you know, he started, well, I guess 84, he's still at WNBC. Let's just say since New York, the early 80s, through K-Rock into the first, I don't know, nine or so years, at Sirius, it was the greatest radio show of all time. Uh, I think the jumping the shark moment for the show is the death of Eric the Midget. And slightly after that, I stopped listening live. I listen to Howard Stern every single day. There is so It's like wrestling for me. There is so much great content available on the internet that I don't have to listen to something I don't like, the new show, uh, but still love Howard. Uh, Howard is the reason I'm doing this probably, the reason I fell in love with radio. And he's the greatest of all time. And I'm disappointed that he's trying to erase his own legacy, trying to brainwash people into believing that uh, he's a great interviewer and that's why he's famous, trying to pretend like he didn't say the things that he said all those years. I wish he would just stand by that and stand up for free speech and for comedy. And I think the show he puts out now is it's terrible. It's a shell of itself. And I've talked with Jimmy Traina long about it. I talked with Jim Florentine about it recently. But I still listen to Howard Stern every day. There's a guy out there who makes this thing called Stern Files. And each week on Monday, he puts out a new one. There's been 50 so far. And it's like 22 hours worth of Stern content from the 80s through about where I cut off, about 2013 or so. And it's unbelievable. And I have all 50 on my phone and every single day I'm listening to Howard and that will never stop. And just think about the power of Stern. So today, 
Dave Portnoy announced that Barstool is basically done at Sirius. They're in two different worlds. So Barstool is out. Stern, the rumors are that he's in for $120 million and the stock goes up 8%. Barstool, you would think, has the power and the, the youth then. Oh, Barstool. Okay, this is a window into what Howard is. Howard is a different level. And he's one of the few people out there that can can get a $120 million contract at SiriusXM and make it worth it. I think their business will be in jeopardy when Howard is done. Um, I still think that that show is a driver of subscriptions there. And it's also a driver of legitimacy. Howard Stern legitimized satellite radio. And it still matters today. And it's interesting. And I'm glad he's there for five more years. Because even though I don't listen still. uh, The fact that there still is a Howard Stern show every day. Now. Every day is relative, of course. He only works three days a week. You know, he only does about 112 shows a year, which I guess is intentional uh, because his birthday is January 12th. But he does about three shows a week, and I would expect that to be the same. I don't think you can go down from that and still get a raise. This is a raise for him. His last contract was somewhere between 80 and 100 million a year. It was also a little bit more complicated, but it included some rights to his catalog that would go on for seven years after. So we'll have to see when the details come out and see if this actually happens. Uh, Bloomberg, like I said, is the source, but it does make me feel like, look, at I never believed he would go on to like Spotify or some other platform. I think at his age, that's just too much work for him. I think the idea, look, at Sirius has built him a wonderful world he has 60 or some employees who work on that show he has a beautiful studio obviously hasn't used it in a long time uh, but it's back it's there and he'll be back to it at some point so it makes a lot of sense for him to to re-sign there and I think that that was it I think he was going either going to re-sign there or he was going to retire and any other discussions rumor discussions or discussions he actually had again I think were negotiations uh, and just kind of a ploy to gain some leverage. But look at the Howard Stern show is the greatest radio show of all time. And anyone who tells you anything different is wrong. And that's that's an opinion I would absolutely die to defend. Um, I don't think there's anything else close. So congratulations to Howard, I guess. I mean, I don't know how much more money he, he needs. I don't, he's got three daughters and I think that they, they could have 10, 15 kids, and the money won't run out. I think he's built an unbelievable nest egg, and it's $500 million more of the serious money if he does sign this deal, uh, and we'll be keeping track of that as negoti- negotiations go on towards the end of the year. His contract is up uh, when he finishes the 112 shows this year, which he usually does in December sometime. All right, with that said, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Blake J. Harris and Jonah Tulis. Our next guests are both New Yorkers. One is a good friend and one is making his debut. One is the author of the book, 
Console Wars, one of the book club, book of the month, book of the year winners. And the other is his partner. They are both the co-directors of the new documentary on CBS All Access. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Blake J. Harris and Jonah Tulis. Hey, Blake. Hey, Jonah. How are you guys doing today? Uh, great. Good. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks, so let's, let's, uh, let's establish voices here for the listeners. Real quick. So Blake has been on several times. Welcome back, Blake. How are you doing, buddy? I'm the one with the nasal, not that great to listen to voice, certainly less cool than Jonah's voice. Right. And now his, his partner and our new friend Jonah is here as well. Uh, also directed uh, the documentary. How are you doing, Jonah? I'm good. I'm good. This is my voice. I, I actually don't know how it sounds. Every time I hear it, I hate it. But, right. you know, it doesn't, you know, you never sound the same as you do. Uh, when you when you hear it in your own head, I think we don't. As humans, we don't agree on a lot, but I think we universally agree that we all hate our voices, the sound of them. Now, maybe not like in in life, but on recording. You know what I mean? Like I know there's the old cliche, like oh, that person loves the sound of their voice, and I can relate to that. But when you hear it, like on a TV or radio or whatever, everyone hates it. Everyone hates their own voice, but. Um, all right, this is a long time coming, I feel like. You know, Jonah, what this book came out in 2012, I believe. Is that right? That's when I started. That's when we, uh, that's when Jonah and I met with Seth Rogen. The book came out in 2014. Though. 14, okay. So th- the process started in 12. The book comes out in 14. We, we met then and talked then. And then I remember shortly after that, you had sent me um, at least a chapter or two of the VR book that came out. Uh, but while all this was going and we were talking, from the very beginning, I feel like I knew there was going to be a documentary and maybe a TV series as well. I just feel like in my back of the head, the whole, but the whole time I knew, okay, there's this cool book, but eventually at some point there's going to be a documentary that I can watch. And that happened the other day. So one of you or both of you, can you kind of take me through the timeline of how we got from, 2012, I guess, when you guys first met with uh, with uh, Seth and how you got to the point the other day where I was actually able to watch it. Cause, and that's probably a long story, <laughs> but just kind of give us kind of the overview, or a little bit brief timeline of how we got from A to B. Sure. John, are you? Well, I'll, I'll, oh, I'll, yeah. it's, uh, I'm glad that you have the contemporaneous, contemporaneous memory because – you know, a lot of people will see the doc coming out and think, oh, the book did well, and then we decided to do a documentary. But that's not the case. It was something that was in parallel development going back to 2011. Um, and I think Jonah tells the story better than I, so he can he can tell you sort of how we got started. It was really interesting. So Blake, you know, we had been writing partners for a while, writing a lot of comedy, um, you know, having opportunities, but never really getting anything sort of really, you know, past the 20-yard line. Um, and we, you know, Blake had sort of, wondered about this video game history and started to stumble upon this story and started to talk to people and sort of really sort of start to get the basis for what this story could be. And again, this is still very early stages, but like there was a story there. We knew there was something great. And Blake's like, I want to write a book about this. It's, this is a great book. And I was like, I agree. And I was like, you know what? There should be a doc too. think about all the amazing media. And don't you want to hear it from these people's point of view directly? And then we're like, Oh, you know, the social network's amazing. What about a movie like that? You know what I mean? Where, where, you're, you're seeing sort of the origins of this from the protagonist or like, you know, later we, you know, compared it to Moneyball as well. And we're like, Oh, you know, let's just try all three. And if one of them works out amazing, amazing. 
Um, so we initially were like, okay, let's see if we can get Seth Rogen involved. We had a relationship with him through our manager, Julian Rosenberg, who's also a producer in console wars. Um, and we met with, uh, Seth, Evan and James Weaver, uh, their partner. And within this that day, they were like, you know, we want to, we want to finance the doc. We want to help get the book sold and we want to make a movie. And again, time went on, they got busy, you know, and then this pr- producer, Scott Rudin, an Oscar winning producer came on and he basically set it up at Sony pictures and then went for months of dealing with the financing and deal making of like the documentary as well and how it was related to Sony. And so we were going to have, it. and he did the social network. So it was a perfect partner. Um, then time went on and we started <laughs> and we stopped and then, you know, we weren't going to do it at Sony anymore. We were going to let that lapse and then let a TV show get developed. But then who's going to do the TV show and the doc? And they were all so interconnected. Meanwhile, with the book, Blake set up the book immediately and was able to just start writing. Um, it's 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 really a truly a one man operation. Whereas and the know, book killed, so right? Many, yeah, the book killed. The book killed. I'm right about that, right? Like I was the only one who loved yeah. it. Like I feel like the book was yeah, very yeah. popular. Yeah, uh, it like got it. it uh, I was really bummed it didn't make the New York Times bestseller list the first week, but it's like still six years later and it still sells really well every week. So, right. you know, it's amazing. And like, the you know, the, the key takeaway from what Joan is saying is that there's been a lot of stop, stopping and starting. The, the, consist, the main consistent variables, though, are that we've wanted to do this ever since 2011. You know, we like obviously Jonah said we wanted all three, a documentary, a book and a TV series or, or at that point a movie. Um, and you know, the ones that we had the most control over with the book and the documentary, cause Jonah was a director and I was going to co-direct this with him. And so that was something that was more in our, our control. And then obviously, like you said, the book, um, and then the other, you know, key consistency factor that deserves a lot of credit is Seth and Evan. There has been a lot of, you know, un- unforeseen <laughs> uh, disturbances on this project and stopping and starting. And because there was the movie and the TV show, it slowed things down at times, but you know, they, they, Jonah said, we met with them in 2012. It was in January 2012. They agreed that day that they wanted to be a part of this, whatever this was becoming, and you know, a book, a movie, and a TV show. And they, you know, it's eight years later, and they're still here. And you know, that's not super common in Hollywood that someone would actually, you know, take care enough about a project to stay involved the whole time. And, uh, and even when a North Korean Sony hack got in the way, which was, you know, right in the middle of this as well. Right. I, um, I remember because that really affected their their one movie. Right. Seth and Evan, their um, the one with yeah, James Franco, they where they're, they're all like playing themselves. Right. Yeah. What yeah. was the name of that movie again? The interview. The interview. The interview. OK. Yeah. Right. OK. Yeah. And our other producer, Scott Rudin's emails were one of the ones that was that were leaked as part of the thing. And it was very controversial. So. How many times did you guys say to each other, maybe it's just going to be a book? Like, did you ever get to that point? Or did you always figure one way or another, one of the other three is going to happen? No. I mean, I def- there was a lot of times when I thought it was only going to be a book. Like, never. Well, because- we, shot, we had shot it. We didn't know if the doc was going to come out because it got stalled yeah, so much. Sure. Because our, like there was never a time where Joe and I were determining whether we wanted there to be right. Like whether it was worth our time. It was more just a matter of would forces outside of our control, not, you know, finance the rest of it, or would it not get distribution or would it be lost? You know, would it, you know, the other thing that Joe and I, uh, uh, dealt with, unfortunately we had partners like Seth and Evan that didn't agree with this, but like there was, there's some, there was some sentiment out there that, um, you know, doing the same story in different mediums would cannibalize each other. 
Um, you know, that if there was a book out there, people wouldn't want to see the doc or vice versa or, or a TV show. But our feeling was always the opposite. It was that, you know, with the social network or Moneyball, two stories we love, we would want to see that in as many forms as possible. You want to see the real people and the Jesse yeah. Eisenberg and the, obviously a great book by Ben Mesrick. So, um, you know, that was... And the OJ, the OJ, the OJ miniseries and the OJ, that they were both incredibly successful. Sure. It's almost like you also have different audiences. The doc can reach sort of an audience that's not going to read a 600-page book. And then, then the people can see the doc and then go to the book for just a whole other, another level of the information and the story and the character. Yeah, I mean, we all have a handful of friends that you're like, you should check out this book. And they're like, nah, let me know when there's a movie. Right? We all have... That friend, one way or another. Nope, I mean, I have a lot of them. I have family members. Right, yeah, that. family too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah I'll read a book. Right. Uh, it's interesting because. But, go but ahead. From the other side, yeah. you also have the you have the book people who now want to hear it from the guys themselves, the guys, the men and women themselves, and also kind of see these commercials and see these the, the these games and sort of be in the room with them in this campfire story. Yeah, one of you guys mentioned like, oh, the, all the media. Like, one of the most delightful things about the documentary is watching the kids open the presents, and that <laughs> you know the evolution. Like, that's just brilliant. Just one of my favorite parts is because I was that I opened you know a Nintendo and a Genesis for sure for two different you know on two different Christmases. Yeah, you us know? too. Yeah, so I could put I mean, my. I mean, a lot of us, I think you know, we look like we're all about the same age. A lot, probably a lot of us in our age group, and you know, maybe if not these exact systems people of other age groups you know like you know my daughter's open you know a tablet fire tablet already you know she's four years old or whatever so it, it's universal of any age just different media i guess but that's one of the best parts of the story like this i mean obviously our attraction to the specific tom kalinsky shinobu toyota ellen beth Danvers, buster sega story is like this team of misfits and this unique alchemy but just generally speaking you know console wars happen and every generation, uh, video game hardware, also in similar, you know, it's going on in music, it's going on in streaming television. Um, and so, and you know, anytime there's tangible things, or even with like, I guess now gift cards or um, downloadable content, basically the, the Christmas concept still happens. Yep. So, so maybe, you, maybe you weren't alive for the Sega Nintendo console wars, but you can feel the glee that those kids and the VHS tapes felt because you know what it's like to get that ultimate, you know. Yeah, PS3 play- maybe or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've had a so I've been doing this since 2011, which is about when you guys started, so a similar time frame. And I think I've had so the director of a documentary called Head Games, a guy named Steve James, uh, was on talking about that. A guy named Gabe Polsky, who's directed a bunch of yeah, kind of hockey of- documentaries and sports stuff. Yeah. yeah, he was a Yale hockey player, and my brother was a Yale hockey player, so we had a Yale hockey connection. So he's been on a few times to talk about his. He's really tough to pin down like he's really funny about his time and whatever but he's been on didn't a f- he recently did like uh didn't he do a doc called like something about greatness so it was like michael yes. jordan and yep like talking about, yeah it was with these great athletes yeah. that was the thing recently of his that i really liked yeah, yeah. And he did i know 30 for 30 did one about the russian the 80 miracle but like from the russian view you know the miracle oh. on ice but with the and he there was a 30 for 30 called i think of Mice and Manor, I don't know, some weird title. But then he had one called Red Army. And his wasn't, oh, yeah. his wasn't just about the 80 team. It was more about the Red Army, like, say, from 70. Yeah. But whatever. Um, no, but that's actually a good comp 
unrelated, but that because I think that's a lot of what John and I wanted to do with the documentary, and one thing that we could definitely do different with the doc and the book, in that showing it from the Red Army Nintendo side, you know, to show sure. obviously the miracle on ice is, is means something special to Americans, and it means something embarrassing or tragic to the Russians. And yeah, humiliating so, for sure. Like, you know, when we were going out to meet with these people and interviewing them, like. It, it, it's very obvious that you'd feel this way, but like when you interview the Nintendo guys, Randy Parrotsman or Peter Main or Howard Lincoln, you're, you don't think, oh, these guys are villains. You just think, oh, they're like, they have their own point of view. They, you know, had reasons for disliking Sega. They had a lot of reasons for doing what they wanted to do. And it was just really fun for us to hear each, each side tell their own hero's journey. Right. And we're sort of in the middle trying to show this collision between their different hero journeys. Yeah. And then the other guy too is a guy named ed cunningham who's actually a college football player broadcaster now was one of the producers on a fistful of quarters king, king, yeah king of kong yeah king yeah. of kong yeah um but what I, my point of bringing all this up is what i'm really interested in is like what people do right so you know like ed was a producer on that so he had a different story and you know gabe is a writer and director so when he, we talked to him he had a you know story and steve james i think when he was on he had also done um pretty much all the work on the project and he also had to deal with like a competing documentary which is something i want to talk to you guys about in a little bit um and then um so so my what i'm really asking you guys is like so what did you guys do specifically on the documentary like blake we have a good relationship through email and text over the years and we'll talk so you know i know you a little bit better than i know jonah but like when you get to this we're talking i guess about the documentary more specifically but i'm sure it'll tie it back into the book maybe take a minute and go over like what your specific roles is like co-directors the writer of the book like where you fit into all of this like what you guys actually did sure yeah and Jonathan, you might, we were also producers on this so okay. we were on the so ground producers the as well, whole yeah. time kind of developing the idea figuring out the budget you know working together with sort of the people that you know legendary have ended up bringing on doug blush who's an excellent producer and you know three time he's done he's edited three academy award-winning movies um uh so yeah i mean like you can start i mean yeah well i was gonna say like is it, i think it's important to note that between the two of us joan is the one who had directing experience he directed a really good documentary that you might enjoy set in the world of ufc called such great heights um a couple years before this he had directed our first movie a mockumentary about rock paper scissors so you know i definitely leaned on him and he was you know of the two of us the one with more experience and and kind of the uh, film guy yeah yeah yeah, exactly. like, yeah. obviously we both do all the things, but right. like, like initially our relationship sort of began in 2005. It's like, oh, I'm a writing guy. I was trying to write novels, and you're a film guy. Let's work together. And then we both evolved since then. But just like very early on, um, I, I was doing these interviews with people like Tom Kalinske and Howard Phillips, and then I would be telling Jonah, usually excitedly by phone. Back then, it was even more than you know, text wasn't as much of a thing, and and we would be, and you know, at that point, it was more just a matter of having someone to talk the story out with figuring out um, simultaneously what archival we could get, what the story was, and then also who we would want to interview for the documentary. Like, in a sense, the all the book interviews were a good screening for, like, the documentary. Like, I interviewed 200-plus people. Who were the, like, 12 people that we wanted for the film or the 15 that we were going to, you know, work with that could, you know, tell the story? And that's, that's you know, part of the, what's hard about a documentary is you're, in, you know, you're cutting the story, like, it was like, very hard, very yeah. hard, because there are people we wanted in there, and in the end, it's 
it's you really you want we we needed our characters to be there like they need to be featured they're not not one or two line offs they're every character is a character who's a part of the story and yeah. like is participating in these scenes and and it sucks because we there are a lot of people we wanted to put in but it's like every second you take away from Tom Kalinsky for somebody else you lose a little bit of Tom Kalinsky's story um, very difficult very difficult yeah and, and also uh, I mean like. That, that's something that we should talk about because something that was very important to us early on and was, I think it was a real challenge for us was we decided early on that we wanted the entire story to be told in the words of these characters because we felt like they're great speakers and we wanted to feel like a campfire story, but we didn't have a narrator. And even when you watch a doc like The Last Dance, which is really fun and really enjoyable, like there's so much that gets accomplished just by having a narrator. Like you could you could say what we're trying, you know, you can right. say things in a sentence that, that take so long to set up. Um, and like Jonah said also, of the, like, I guess the backtrack of the 200 people I spoke with for the book, I'm sure 90% of them had at least one very interesting thing to say. But we didn't want this character, the, the documentary, to be people chiming in. We wanted it to be like if you saw someone on screen, they were a part of the story and they were going to have a role throughout the whole story. They weren't just, you know, giving us a piece of information about Super Mario Bros. 3. So that made it hard for us, too, to come up with characters and to make sure that they were, you know, consistently appearing throughout the story. Yeah, and we that, didn't have any experts or celebrities. We wanted to keep it to these I characters that. telling the yep. story to keep you in that moment. I noticed. Even to that point, yeah, oh, sorry, no, I, I was just gonna say I noticed that because I was thinking like going into it, like, are we gonna see people like Seth on here? You know, are we gonna see? You know, they get. You know, I could picture it like, yeah, you know, I had Genesis, and you know, I love playing that game or whatever. You know, totally. That yeah. was something we talked about, and also, like the like in. in in Jonah and my conversation, the the example of what we didn't want this to be that we talked about a lot was like, hey, remember the 90s? Like, we know that these are nostalgic things that are going to bring back memories, and that's fun to see the commercials. But we didn't want it to just be like, hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? We want it to be people remembering it, but in the course of a narrative-driven, character-driven story. Um, and, like, another thing that we did that we actually filmed and, we, and came out really nice was we – uh, interviewed, you know, ordinary people, people that were game fans, people that had some connection to gaming that maybe didn't game anymore. And they had very poetic, uh, often beautiful and nostalgic stories. But like what Jonah was saying earlier, our litmus test was always, would we rather see this or would we rather see more of the characters themselves telling the story? And we felt like we owed it to the characters themselves because they were interesting and it was already, a, you know, a, a short time frame to tell their story. It would kind of take you out of the, yeah. the, the, the moment and we wanted to stay at that campfire with these guys and you know, and another thing, you know, that kind of kept us in it, and I, we were talking about roles, was sort of the archival, which is sort of my weird expertise. I love to go in there and get all the archival at every network and then figure out how to use it in creative ways. You know, that you see there's tons of archival. There was so much more. But, like, even when, you know, when we first, one of the first things we did as an experiment was crafting um, a scene out of the video game violence hearing. And you see the, the version we have now is maybe two or three minutes. I don't remember exactly. But, you know, we have a nine-minute version of that that harkens back to uh, there's a movie, and I believe, uh, that was sort of uh, based on the McCarthy hearings. That was all, it was called Point of Order. It was all inside using real footage from these hearings, and it was so compelling and amazing. And I was like, okay, well, let's just take this archival and create a compelling and beautiful story within the context of this scene. And, yeah, we break away for a little bit, but I, we love to stay in the, car, in the archival stay in that time capsule and, and sort of that that was one of the biggest things for us i think was keeping you know and, our and characters that we started specifically with that scene which i think is not the most compelling scene in the movie i mean it is in the final result but like that's the only scene in the entire movie where we have all the footage of what happened you know like right. there's 
five hours of the C-SPAN footage of the right. hearings, where it's everything else. You got it you all. Know, like yep. I early, early on made a list of like, here's like 25 potential scenes, Tom Kalinske on the beach being offered a job, the you know the Sega team coming together and get a Super Nintendo and these things. And it was like, all right, even if we decide that these are important moments for the story, what are we going to actually show so that the viewer feels like they're in the room with these people because we there's no footage that exists of that. So the C-SPAN thing was a good, or the Senate hearings was a good place to begin. And I think that to show how like nerdy Jonah and I are, like we could have gone with like a seven-hour version of this movie <laughs> that had like a nine-minute Senate hearing scene, but right. we, you know we're making this for an audience of other people than us. So. They, uh, so I don't know if you guys, to... I don't know if you guys seen Pearl Jam twenty, but Cameron Crow. People are gonna make fun of me because they say I find a way to get Pearl Jam into everything, but uh, Cameron Crow did a really good job with the Senate hearings uh, when Pearl Jam spoke. Or maybe it was Congress, whatever one. Uh, when they spoke about the Ticketmaster battle, and they did, oh, yeah. A, yeah, he did a really good job, kind of capturing some of the senators. Like, I don't know, how, like I don't know if we want to say fanboy re like reaction to the guys from Pearl Jam or what, but it's kind of funny. But the other thing I want to go back to what you were saying, you're talking about people that could have been really good, but they didn't make it, and you wanted to make sure you focused on people like Tom or whatever. I remember when Gabe was on, you're talking about Russian hockey and like. My favorite hockey player of all time is Pavel Bure. I don't know how much yeah. you guys know about hockey, but he's a hockey hall of famer. He's one of the like one of the original defectors, you know, like a superstar of superstars. And uh, I said to him, like, from New York, so we the Rangers hockey right, business a, a former Ranger, yep, a former yeah. Ranger Bure. Uh, well, no, the Canucks versus the Rangers was like a big deal in our childhood. Right? Yes, of course. Yeah, saved by Richter, right on the penalty Pavel. shot. Yeah, on the penalty shot. But I said to him, I said, like, you know, I was disappointed he wasn't in there. And he's like, oh, I flew to Moscow. It took me six months to set up. I flew to Moscow and sat with him for two hours. And it's amazing. But in the end, it just wasn't amazing for this. You know, and I was thinking about that when you guys were talking. Like, I don't know. I have trouble. Hard ah, there's certain people that even if they're not the yeah, most. I, I disagreed with Gabe on that one. <laughs> I disagreed with Gabe on that one. But also, like I just told you, I'm like the biggest Pavel Bure fan. Yeah. You know, in the world, so yeah, 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 and then you know the '94 finals. Jeez, I actually did a hour and a half podcast with a guy named John Delapina, who was a New York Daily News writer uh, at that time, who followed the Devils and then the Cup. But uh, yeah, so I thought of those uh, two things when you guys were talking. Um, one thing you guys did do though was the video game type animations to kind of, um, you know, they they looked like you know the times like eight bit ones and maybe that. I felt like maybe there was a subtle kind of shift as it went on to like more of a 16 bit looking one that maybe I was making that up in my head, but oh, you're right. It uh, actually kind of worked backwards because we went to the Nintendo stuff after, but yeah, no, th okay. th there was, it wasn't the exact same style throughout the whole movie. Talk about, yeah. just you talk about, to, you, you had decision. to, you had to, Oh yeah. The process was very, we initially wanted to do everything in the exact styles, but you know, when you talk about the original NES and the, the characters are so, so small and condensed, you, you kind of, you need to, to to evolve it a little bit so that you can see what's going on. Right. Yeah, um, like a big debate for us, and and like I'm I'm very happy with where we ended up. Is like we were always trying to balance um, the authenticity versus a dramatic storytelling, and also the fun okay. and whimsy of the story versus the drama of it, because it meant a lot to these people. So you know, like like um, like early on. I, I definitely had been championing for like all like eight bit sort of like little animations. And Jonah said that, you know, that there's, you can't see the expressions of the people's faces that you lose a lot. 
and he was correct. I, I think he was correct about that. I think it was good that we didn't just go in that direction. And like, you know, we didn't want them to feel like silly little scenes. We wanted you to feel like you're in the room with these people. And sometimes it was more of like an anime style, like in the boardroom fight with Nakayama. Um, but like Jonah and I often say that the like true heroes of this film and what makes it so good is the, you know, the original score by Jeff Beale who's most well-known for House of Cards, and he was willing to do this on a, at a much lower rate, which was amazing. He was our top choice. And the animation and the archival. And the animation was done by this team called Mind Bomb that came to us through our uh, producer, Doug Blush, that Jonah had mentioned. And they, they're, uh, Jonah can talk more about it, but it's like they're the ideal partner in a creative project where you give them an idea and they do... They turn in what you what they turn in is not what you expect, but it's better. It takes like the spirit of what you want, but they much actually, better. Yeah, like, they, like better. we're like do this, and then they don't do it exactly because they know what we're trying to say, but yes. they are like we're the experts. We'll come up with something creative, and I think every single time, like there was never a time when they took a shot that we that it wasn't like yes, that's great. They 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 just they're so good at what they do. One that sticks out in my head. The boardroom scene for the, go ahead. The boardroom scene we saw for the first time, which was one of the tougher ones because you have these. It's a serious scene, so you couldn't really use 8-bit stuff. You had to use sort of cutscene styles, and it, it was still serious, but we were able to, like, make it funny at times, too, with Nakayama. And I think that that was the moment where we're like, wow, they really just got it. They got it perfectly. And, and I don't, but by the way, those are hand-drawn animations that were then wow. animated. Wow. So we could capture the looks on their faces. The one that I, it sticks out to me is the beach, the beach one, you know, where he's talking about the story of being in Hawaii and on vacation or whatever and on the beach. I don't know why that just stuck out to me as like a really cool way to kind of show that. It's obviously there is no like, you know, VHS, like they probably weren't doing family movies or that or whatever. It just was a good way I thought to add to just the benign kind of like telling of that story or whatever. But that sticks out. I really liked that. Let's talk a little bit about the the story itself and some things in the story. So I told, uh, Blake, that I love the documentary except for one thing. Yeah, but I, yeah. yeah. the thing, uh-huh. I, thing that I didn't like, and it's he on. He told me on like Thursday, he's like, I really like it, but there's one thing I hate. And I was like, oh, you're going to make me wait three right. days to hear this. But you know, <laughs> when I tell you what I hate, it's it's really because I'm an idiot is why I hate it. Uh, what, I, what drove me nuts is since it had been such a gap between when I read Console Wars and when I seen this documentary, I could never remember. I couldn't keep straight in my head, especially after. I said, when I talk to Blake, am I going to start talking about something that was from the book? Oh. You know, and, and it's not in the documentary or, you know, and then when I would see something in the documentary, I'd be like, did he talk about that in the book? And I'd like pull the book out and I'm like <laughs> looking for it maybe. And so that was, again, it, it drove me nuts because I obsess over silly things uh, like so that. Silly, very specific thing. But also, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like oh. I just couldn't keep track. Like, okay, is this in both or is this just in the book? Did they not tell this part? Like one thing I did notice that I thought, because personally I was a huge Genesis guy because I thought they had the much better sports games and I love to play sports games. And I remember there being some, a lot more about EA sports and the role of the sports games in the book. And that didn't make the doc. So that was one that I thought, and that was just because of my personal thing that, oh, there wasn't other than maybe like a clip of the game. There wasn't really anything about EA sports or the role that sports games had um, in making Genesis more popular with especially the guy friends that I had, like all the friends from my hockey team, we all played Genesis and it was always because we love playing NHL 94, you know, yeah. on Genesis way more than Sega. So 
Well, we we had mentioned it. Uh, we had mentioned uh, you know during the four point plan presentation, sort of that was the we needed to get these sports games to see Joe Montana right. football. You start mm-hmm. to see that and sort of just pepper that in throughout. But it's hard, you know, the reverse engineering the Genesis story from from Trip Hawkins. That that was a tough one to fit in. There was it only really came from Tom's point of view, so you couldn't have like a, a bat. A, yeah, <laughs> there's the NHL. Yeah, I'm holding up a little uh, hand drawn thing that. Um, I had gotten it as a gift. It's a panel from NHL 94 that has Harris as the player getting hat trick. Yeah, yeah no, more of was... my uh, Pavel Bure love from NHL 94. You know, 100 speed. He was the man in NHL 94. But Yeah, I mean, but even to, like, I think John and I, what we mostly played on consoles was sports games back in the day. That was what I loved playing with my brother. That's why I'm glad I ended up on Team Genesis. But, you know, uh, we didn't. We, t- we really tried to focus the, the story more on the generals in this battle than on the weapons themselves, than on the games. Uh, agree or disagree with the decision, but that was like... Right decision. Yeah, but that yeah. was like, you know, that was hard for us because we could have done, like, look, we could do a half-hour documentary about any of these games that we love. Like, Kangaroo Junior Baseball, we could do, like, we'd be interested to do 30 minutes on that, but we were always trying to service the underlying story and how to kill a lot of babies and did, you know, all we could really do to try to compromise was get in game footage from our favorite games just as like a flash you yeah know? yeah and go ahead yeah okay. i was a good example of the creation of sonic where we show the game but we also show like these guys talking about how there was a girlfriend named madonna there was a band right they almost chose these silly eggs instead of sonic like that's the stuff that was sort of i feel like needed to be out there rather than sort of the technical aspects of sonic which we all know are Uh, and the madonna thing was something i was like i can't remember if that was in the book or not like to me at the moment it felt like a revelation that like i didn't remember that from the book but again that just could be because i have a bad memory it it was in the book but that's a perfect example of like why the documentary can do so much that the book can't do because i mentioned in the book i don't remember how but it would never compare to the impact of actually seeing they wanted that in the game like yeah (laughs) yeah the style of sonic and even like i you know i mentioned the rock band in there i mentioned that stuff but like just seeing it visually and not even just our representation but here's actually what the designers were like this is what would have happened if it hadn't changed good point that's a really good point or you see that egg on screen you see that egg on screen you're like oh my god that could have been sega's mascot like you can read that but then you see it on screen and you're like what yeah yeah and uh off the record sometime i'll tell you a great pavel burry madonna story uh, but anyway, uh, so I'm a huge karate. So what, what's the real reason? Why do the hockey players always get the most beautiful women? Uh, I think it's the, the way hockey players are built. You know, I think it's the strong legs and butts. You know, I think it's a very, uh, plus, uh, the, the temperament, you know, the hockey players are very team oriented. They're not really me first athletes, you know? So I think that translates well in relationships. Uh, very good. <laughs> not expecting. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, all right. So I'm a huge Karate Kid fan. Like it, I've probably watched it once a month since 1984, at least, right? And um, so I've loved Cobra Kai in the last few weeks. Uh, Cobra Kai is now on Netflix, so it's kind yeah. of right. The guys are out there. And when I was preparing for this, I had watched a video with Ralph Ta- Macho talking about how what's interesting about Cobra Kai is they've blurred the lines on who the hero and the villain are. Right where the movie, it was a very clear, you know, Johnny is the bad guy, you know, and um, Ralph is the good guy. Where the show now it bounces back and forth. There's a little bit of a gray area. Who are you rooting for? And I was thinking about your 
movie and I was thinking about Sega versus Nintendo, right? And when I was watching the documentary, I was very much thinking like, all right, Sega were the heroes here and Nintendo were the heels. You know, if this was WrestleMania 3, you know, um, Hogan <laughs> is Sega and Andre the Giant is Nintendo. You know, Andre the Giant is the unbeatable, arrogant, heel, dominating, hasn't lost in 15 years. And Hogan is Sega, the hero who comes and body slams him and whatever. Um, what do you guys think about the documentary and who the hero is, who the villain is? Because what I was going to then say, too, is then all of a sudden, the last 25 minutes or so, you guys soften me on Nintendo a little bit. Right. When you go back. You know, because it kind of starts with Nintendo, then there's a long part of Sega, and then at the the last bit there, you kind of go back to Nintendo. And all of a sudden now, you got me softening, and I was thinking about Ralph saying, a blur here, we're going back and forth. Is that how you guys think it is? Do you think one is the hero? Do you think one is the villain? You can kind of both talk about it, or one or the other, or whatever you guys think about that thought that I had. Yeah, you're 100% spot on. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. Go ahead, Blake. Well, that's a huge compliment, uh, not just because I really like Cobra Kai, and I, not, and I, one of the reasons I like Cobra Kai is, like, I think it would be fine as a standalone, even if there hadn't been a Karate Kid, but I think it is so cool that they, and, and, you know, and it doesn't even start off with, uh, uh, what's his name, Johnny? Yeah, Johnny is the Cobra Kai, yeah. right. Yeah, like, he even starts off as a jerk. I was kind of expecting that, like, it would start off with, like, look, he's actually a good guy. But it's not. It's just, like, you right. get inside his head to see why he was the way he was. And that was such a big part of Nintendo. Like, we wanted to, like, the, thing, the difference between real life and WWF is that Andre the Giant had signed on to play the role of a heel. Like, he knew that's what his job was. Nintendo didn't agree to that. In their minds, they were the hero. They saw Sega as the heel, and so we thought that that was important to get across, especially because Nintendo put out great products too, probably even more great products than Sega. Um, and that was always like, like that was something that John and I knew really early on we wanted to do. We just really struggled with the best way to do it because, you know, I, I think uh, like our instinct is chronological, and that's often how I do a lot of the nonfiction writing, but. But the problem was that if you start off with Nintendo, then they're going to never be the heel because you're going to see the first 20 minutes of their little scrappy underdog success story. And so, Donna, you can talk about how we ended up problem solving that and like how proud we were of what we came up with. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, our number one goal and sort of the point of view for this was like, okay, this, this scrappy Sega is going to come take on Nintendo. But then later you're going to find out that Nintendo was its own sort of scrappy business that resurrected the industry. And, you know, we... we, we we really we had start we initially first cut we did it chronological and it just it wasn't as compelling because you have warmed to Nintendo and then how are you going to dislike them later uh, how are you gonna, you you understand too much we wanted to slow reveal it and at one point then we had the Nintendo story coming about twenty minutes in but we're like no we want to wait until Sega's on top and then reveal that Nintendo was once sort of this and at the same time. We also wanted to put doubt into in people, the viewers of Tom Kalinske. Was he, you know, George Harrison says he was like the music man going from town to town. And George Harrison's a very reliable narrator. He's not Howard or Peter who's going after Tom. George is, is sort of a, an honest, says exactly what's going on sort of guy. And he says, is this guy the music man? And we use the slow motion zoom of Tom as he's, as he's, and, and I, listen, they, they, they're, it's, I think it's exactly what you're saying with Cobra Kai, where it's like, 
who's the villain. Yes, Tom was going up against Nintendo, but he was using tactics that were, you know, villainous. And Nintendo was using villainous tactics to protect the market. But in the end, it was just to service the video game world and services their business. Well, here's the thing that I... So Sega got ahead by using people who once worked at Nintendo. And they even throw it in their face at the hearing by who they sent to the hearing, right? And then there's this moment later where they're, like, whining about the guy who left their outfit to go to Sony, you know? Yeah. So, because I was I was watching, my, my wife was watching a little bit with me, and I was like, yeah, I was a Sega guy, you know, look at these Sega guys. You know, then I got all pissed off at them because they were being babies about the guy going to uh, to Sony, you know? So, um, that's, you know, that was a big example where I found myself, like, being so happy I was Sega, then like turning on the Sega guys, like ah, they're being hypocrites, you know. But but it's like that's that's like how life works. Like I feel like when Tom told me about sending Bill White to Congress, I was like, oh yeah, that's badass, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. But if he was telling me the reverse that Nintendo did it to him, I'd be like, oh, they're such jerks. Why would they do yeah. that? And then I'm wow, I'm really being influenced by the speaker. And that all and like the other part that you're talking about, where like complaining about the thing that you did, that happens all the time in real life. Like, yes. I feel like I Politics, about especially, right? Politics is notorious for that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Politicians love to uh, complain about the, oh, the other side did this. And then, you know, yeah. the, the rebuttal is always like, well, yeah, but you did that too, right? You know, like whatever. It doesn't matter what side you're on, you know, every side. And, I, and I'm glad that you, that you, like pick that up because uh, like Joan and I could have been heavy handed about it or if we'd had a narrator say like and then three years later Sega did what they complained they did but we wanted to just let it speak for itself and if someone made that connection which I think it was does yeah there, it does yeah that's great and if not then I you know it was we never did it just for that purpose it was always in service of the story but like there was definitely things like that we thought i'm glad that you noticed that because that was yeah. intentional and it really annoyed me for some reason too i don't know maybe because i was a playstation guy as well then because again playstation was great for the sports game still is you know i've never played an xbox you know just because in my mind like at this point in my life i pretty much play madden once in a while i'll play an nhl game that's really it so it's, you know the time i have right. budgeted for video games i just play one of those and playstation is great for it so i've never you know but um yeah, that annoyed me for some reason. That got in my mind. One thing I was thinking about while we were talking is all this stuff that could have been, all this stuff that was. Um, is there any – I know DVDs aren't as popular as they were 10 years ago, and maybe this would be an obvious question if it was 10 years earlier. There would be a DVD or a Blu-ray that would be coming out, and it would have a second uh, version of this that was you know, 45 minutes longer or, or whatever. Is there any thought in your minds of – like, okay, this one is the one that aired on CBS. I want to talk about that in a minute, too. But, um, you know, maybe there is another version of this that's a little longer or a little in-depth. Or maybe it has this part that we cut out or whatever, and we could use it this way. Or is it kind of like, all right, documentary, this is what it was. We settled on this. That's what it is. Let's move on to whether or not there's going to be a TV or a movie or other projects or whatever, you know. I mean, I think that Jonah, when he said earlier that we weren't just producers, the directors, we weren't just the directors, we were also producers, is, you know, there's, is, is part of the answer to the question. Like, there's no director's cut in part because this is the version that we wanted to go out there. Like, we weren't fighting with the studio. We got, you know, we, we, this is the version we wanted. So I think that there's, like, maybe some deleted scenes one day that would make sense to share or absolutely that we'd, like, want to get out there. But, like, uh, this, is the, this is the foot that we're putting forward like this is what we this is what we wanted. So um, no, there, yeah. were, there were no 
There's no yeah, we, 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 we had a lot of, you know, despite being one of the, I think probably one of the only docs in history to have major billion dollars behind them. We were getting notes, but the notes were pretty minimal or they were stuff we were addressing already. The notes would come two weeks, you know, after getting a cut. And then it was like stuff that we were working on anyway, because it's a long evolution, this process, you know, it's okay. How do we bring you back to the Nintendo section in a compelling way that connects it without just doing a hard cut? So yeah, that's the stuff we kind of evolved and evolved and evolved. I do think it's more deleted scenes than it is a different cut. We sure. have, you know, even back in the early days, we had like a five minute, it was mostly talking head scene, but like talking about the Tetris thing, which, yeah. which, you know, the Tetris going to Russia and like, there's so many, but they're, they don't have the same visual, you know, cause we, they're, they're more rough in, in nature. And we kind of sort of would identify early, like, okay, this is an amazing story but we can't cut away for five minutes to talk about Tetris and we can't cut away for five minutes to talk about, you know, um, uh, Sony earlier on, you know, or we actually at one point had this whole giant Sony retrospective where when we introduced Sony, we introduced them with this amazing footage we found about talking about how the Walkman changed the whole business. And we had this like super elaborate, like Sony section that, that was awesome, but it just like, it took you out of it for two or three minutes and, you know, we need to stay focused. Eyes on the prize. <laughs> I think that was like a lot, even though the book, uh, you know, I, I pride it in being a very easy read and like very narrative driven, but like that was stuff that I felt like I could get away with a lot more with the book. Like right. the talk about you know, beta versus VHS and then using that as a parallel to what was going on in the hardware gaming space. Um, but like that's because I got to narrate it because I got to make direct comparisons because I could always, you know, I can shape it as I want. Whereas with the documentary, we're working with these ingredients that are, you know, like Joe and I, I think we found the best ingredients that all the archival and all that, but like, it's still a limited supply. You can't make whatever you want. And so we tried to be as lean as possible and really just make sure to tell the story in the hopes that, you know, like, like with the book too, I, I always want, you know, it's 600 pages, but it's not comprehensive. There's still more on the topic to be written, not specific to console wars, but I think each part could be its own book. You know, like there's bi there's biographies of Peter Main or Howard Lincoln that could be written, and I think that we just want this as like a jumping off point and to be out there to show people that this works, this this documentary, this game documentary works, and hopefully it'll lead to other gaming documentaries too. I was thinking about The Wire when you're talking about deleted scenes. The Wire has these like cool little two minute movies. I don't know if you guys watch The Wire, if you've seen them. Like, yeah. there's one I know where Prop hey, Joe, work, where Prop Joe is like a kid. Do you guys ever see this? Like Prop Joe is like a no. like a six year old, and he's make like literally makes a proposition to his teacher like to get answers to a test or something and i think and then i think there's one about omar there's like three or four of them um they're like two minutes long and i think originally they were on a uh, like a dvd box set or something but now they kind of exist on like a on youtube really i think that there is an, an hbo wire youtube that they started when they remat when they did the hd version of the show so you can find those there and they're, they're like really popular. Like they'll like go around, you know, like every once in a while I see, especially that prop Joe one, I think is the most popular. Um, you know, I was thinking about that when you guys were saying deleted scenes, like what a great YouTube channel it would be, you know, to put up, you know, every once in a while, a four minute thing about Tetris, like you said, or whatever. But, um, all right, two more things I definitely want to get to before we run out of time. All right. This one is about, um, where it eventually landed CBS, right now. Luckily, my wife is a huge, and me too, I'll admit, me too, Big Brother fan. And in the summer, we always have the CBS All Access for the live feeds of Big Brother. So I didn't even have to do anything to watch it, but just go to that anyway. 
there is a million places now, which I think is good for creators um, and maybe sometimes difficult for um, viewers. Like, for example, when Cobra Kai came out, I needed to see it. So I needed to get YouTube premium or whatever the hell that was you know right and there's of course netflix and hulu the guys uh from that metal show uh uh, eddie trunk and jim florentine and don jameson they're kind of friends of mine and on the show all the time and a big joke is to tease them and say well have you talked to um you know netflix about you know doing that metal show since it's not on tv anymore you know as if like they hadn't thought of that uh what about where this ended up how did you get there was there a time where you thought maybe it would be here but no one ended up here is there a process of story or is it maybe as simple as you're tied to this studio or these people and because of that this is the one they have so it ended up streaming there i don't know well well legendary who was the main studio behind this uh for the tv version it was because of the tv version it was where the tv version was going to land legendary has a couple shows at netflix um they weren't one. They weren't one of the ones we ended up meeting with. I don't know if Netflix is just trying to be its own studio now and own their content, whereas they'd have to license it from Legendary. You know, they did. Legendary did Lost in Space. There, Love. I think one other at Netflix. And also has a sh- Carna- uh, Carnival Row on Amazon. So it it, w- it was following wherever the TV show was going. But we thought, okay, it's CBS All Access. They don't have docs, so maybe we're going to be free agents with the doc, which is fine by us, and we couldn't take it to anybody. And we thought that might be the case at first, but we or ended up screening, screening some... Or we thought that it might be buried because they didn't do yeah. docs as well. And, and we thought they'd just take care of us. We're executive producers on the TV series as well, so we thought, okay, well, maybe that's the case. That being said, we showed a 30-minute reel of this to the executives of CBS, uh, Danny Feldheim and Julie McNamara, and they were, we were like, you know, they've never done this before, so it might take weeks before they have an answer. They were all in like the next day, mm. and they loved it. And obviously, then there was six months of, you know, strategizing after that, as there tends to be, but like they were all in, and they, and it's the first original documentary from the network, which is cool because CBS has been really good at getting us out there. And, you know, it's not just getting lost on a streaming service, it sometimes happens. And, you know, I think. It, it, they have less subscribers, but it's going to be a slower burn on it, and hopefully people keep watching it, they'll keep featuring it, and it'll be exciting. Yeah, I mean, even if, even if we weren't tied to the TV show, like being a CBS All Access, I still think based on our experience thus far with CBS All Access, I'm, you know, I'm very happy we ended up there, because you are balancing, you know, being one of the many hundreds of shows that Netflix somehow sure. is the money to produce every year, right. that don't really get promoted, versus being treated very special at cbs all access uh you know i also am really it, grateful for, it feels for special it feels Which, special on there every time i open the app you know yeah huge square you know what i mean it feels like it's important to them what is the status of the tv show because you keep mentioning the tv show the tv show the tv show what where does that stand well unfortunately we don't have any good answers because like it's you know no new news has come out um, there, there, COVID there, slowed things down a bit, obviously. What was the last uh, news, right? So the last we, news was that uh, Mike Rosolio, you know, uh, an A-list screenwriter, wrote a great script for the pilot that we both loved, and not just us, but... Incredible script. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, like, amazing, because, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I read a lot of scripts that I don't think are good, and also, this is such a personal story to us that, like, I feel like we would have been... Yeah, it wouldn't have been surprising if we were kind of defensive, like, oh, it, it doesn't capture this or it doesn't have that, but it did a great job. Like 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 Mind Bomb, the animation people of like capturing the essence of what we wanted 
but also bringing stuff to the table that we never would have thought to ask. So we have a pilot script to, def, you know, we're biased, but it's the best pilot script I've ever read. I'm really happy with it. And honestly, the Point Grey, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, James Weaver camp really think it thought it was really special too. So let's come out of this uh, this pandemic and hopefully get this thing uh, going because I think the story I think the story can be really told in an interesting way like that. I mean, it's 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 there's there's a lot of there's a lot of magic left to be had. So before baseball season started, I asked Jeff Passon this. I'll ask you this guy. I'll ask you guys this. If I gave you $10,000 and all you could do with it was put a bet down in Vegas on whether A, there'll be a TV show or B, there won't be a TV show. That's all you can do with this money. And, you know, if if you win, you get the 20K back, the original 10 and the 10 that you win from the right. So what are you going to do? Wait, what was that on whether there would be a baseball season or not? That's what I asked him. There was actually, yeah, there was actually, you know what? There's with baseball, there was three I put, choices. I put the money down. Yeah, I put the money down. It maybe, it maybe, it maybe more. Years on that, it would happen. Us, but yeah, I think yeah. the script is so good. You know, yeah, the, 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 put the money down with negative two hundred odds. Okay, yeah, you take a bad vig <laughs> on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope it. I always, I'm a big Howard Stern fan, and I listen to him talk about the script for Fartman being like the best script ever. I know the guy that wrote True Lies wrote it whoever that you know i can't think of his name but i know that he would always mention that like it was the guy who wrote oh and pretty woman he might have wrote pretty woman too or definitely true lies and i mean howard talked about it for 20 years what a great script it was he says that he didn't do it for two reasons one because the toys they wanted to make toys and all this merchandising and stuff and he didn't want any of that i know it was inner interscope i think maybe and then the other reason was he's like if howard stern's first movie is about a guy named fart man it's going to get dismissed as like, oh, this guy who does fart and dick jokes, you know, just is doing a fart. And, uh, anyway, all right. So uh, Blake and Jonah, let's uh, tell everyone where to watch this thing we've been talking about for so long. Um, it's called Console Wars, which was a good idea to name it that. Um, which is the same name as the book. And you can find it on CBS All Access, which is, uh, you know, the streaming service that CBS has. Um, which it's an app and um, like I know Roku has the app or pretty much I think anyone has it. I don't think they're one of these like I know Peacock isn't somewhere. Yeah. I think CBS has got to figure it out where they're everywhere. Everywhere. You, you yeah, they have other it. good shows. They have good Star Trek content. They And they a, offer a trial. trial. They yeah. offer a trial like some places don't or whatever, but they offer a trial. I think I've had like six of them. You know, it's one of these where, like, if you can find a new, not one per customer. Yeah, if you can, well, you can find another email and another credit card. Like, you can do it in perpetuity, right? Like, I think I've asked like both of my brothers, "Hey, can I borrow your credit card for this fake trial I'm going to join?" But um, yeah, they have a trial, uh, and it's easy to get. I mean, anyone who can watch a streaming show on anything will be able to find this. Uh, what else? What else should I mention in terms of promotion or in terms of watching this or anything else? You get? We got like uh, four minutes left from your drop dead, which I want to respect. So anything else that I didn't get to or anything else you want to mention? So I had fun talking about this, but with most of my interviews, when we hang up, the first thing I'm going to do before I hit save is, ah, fuck, I should ask them this, you know, like whatever. So but maybe there's something in your minds that you want to get out there in terms of promotion or the story or whatever. Go ahead. Both of you can have the floor. Well, one of the reasons that we love telling the story, you know, telling this specific Sega Nintendo story from the 90s is because so often we find that when we're talking to friends 
or friends of friends that they all have their own stories, you know, that they put in their own mind about their big Christmas gift that they got or Hanukkah gift or, you know, that they worked at some, they mowed lawns and made money. So we love hearing other people's stories. So if, you know, if you, if you get the chance to see the movie, we'd love to hear what you think, obviously, but also like love to hear your, whatever your great video game story is of like the, you know, the big gift you got or what it was, you know, we, we there's, there's very little on the subject matter that we're not going to enjoy hearing. So I guess just recommend that on, uh, Twitter, Twitter yeah. at Blake J. Harris, right? Yeah, Blake J. Harris, NYC. And what are you, Jonah? At Jonah Tulis? Yep, at Jonah Tulis. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to follow out. you, Jonah. You better follow back. Right. I give 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? As you'll see, I'm not prolific, but I'll follow back. Okay, what about you, Jonah? What else do you got? Anything else you want to mention? I think I think I think you got I think we covered everything, uh, and I think you know again any streaming service. I think you can even get it through Amazon or Apple TV Plus or Hulu. Like it's like one of those add-ons, CBS All Access. Um, in January, though, it also becomes Paramount Plus. So they're going to have uh, all the Paramount movies, I believe, all the Viacom properties, Nickelodeon, MTV. Um, yeah, that, that'll be interesting. Yeah, I just had to track down Paramount to watch this cowboy show called Yellowstone. Have you guys seen this? Oh, yeah, it's, it's very good. It's good, yeah. not great, though. It's good, but not great. Yeah, yeah. uh, I had heard I it had like a Sopranos level buzz to it from some people. Are like, oh, it's a yeah, from it's, it's it's you know, it's uh. Sopranos, but with cowboys and da 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 da. And I'm like, what? This is not the Sopranos. This is good. But it's, <laughs> come on. And, you know, back up with the Sopranos talk. All right. Blake, thank you so much, first of all, for being a really good guy to me. Last year, Blake and I had just a nightmare of trying to schedule something and actually do it with uh, his book, which is, I think, right here still. Uh, somewhere. Too many books. Yeah. Yes. We still got to talk about it more someday because I have questions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But thank you awesome. for sticking with me. Thank you for doing this. Jonah, good to meet you. Uh, good to meet you as well. And look at it. So like the last thing. Like I love this. Like this was so fun to watch. You know, I watched yeah. it. You know, I watched it the first day. And then this morning I watched like 30, 40 minutes of it because I wanted to try to re-remember some stuff. But then, then I didn't go to the grocery store or something. So I didn't finish. But I'm going to finish it again. It's just really fun to watch. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. So I think people. Oh, I mean, I'm really glad you say that. I uh... I think someone made the point to me the other day that, like, you know, with political season heating up over the next oh, six weeks, yes. this is like a great movie to just oh. not be in that headspace. Yes. Like, we, like, like, you know, there's educational information in there, and uh, you know, you learn. But ultimately, we made the movie to be fun, entertaining, and authentic, and we just wanted to provide a fun escape. Um, we get to spend time. We get to spend ninety minutes with these really fun people that we like spending time with. So. I'm glad that it worked that you that it resonated with you in that way. All right, well, I hope it kills. Um, you know, it seems like it's not just me who likes it. You know, I've been following your Twitter, all the stuff you've retweeted. It feels like there's a lot of people enjoying it. But uh, thanks for all the time. Um, thanks, Steve. and I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, harder than down She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points on her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high I passed the cornfields where the woods got heavy Out in the back seat of my 60 Chevy 
I want to thank Blake J. Harris and Jonah Tulis for being on the podcast today. Please check out Console Wars, uh, the documentary on CBS All Access. It is worth your time. It's awesome, and I really enjoyed that, and I want to thank uh, Blake and Jonah for being on the podcast. In a second, we're going to talk to Jason Cole. He, of course, is the author of A Relentless Life, a book about John Elway, and I really enjoyed this book, and I enjoyed the interview with Jason, and we're going to do that in a second. Uh, Don't forget as well about our friend Jeff Perlman. His book, Three Ring Circus, is available. Uh, where you where you you know buy books, it's out there. I know when he was on, it was still a couple days from being released, but it is available. Uh, also, we have one book left from the four that we started with when we transitioned into the fall, uh, and that book is by a guy named Brandon Sneed, and the book is called Sooner, and it is about Lincoln Riley, who is facing his first bit of real adversity at the University of Oklahoma, as the Sooners are 1-2, and 0-2 and in the Big 12, and really reeling, and they can't stop anyone. And it really has been the story of his tenure at OU. They just can't, you know, they can't get, they can't get out of their way and on defense, and they can't get off the field, and they can't stop giving up big plays. Uh, but the book, Sooner, Uh, by Brandon Steed is the next interview we have to do for the book club uh, and we'll do it soon because we have two new books uh, to announce today and I'm really excited about both of them. The first one uh, is called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas and it's by an author named Glenn Kenny and this book is the number one bestseller in organized crime true accounts on Amazon. I love these categories on Amazon. Uh, it is available uh, now for your purchase. And look at Goodfellas is, if not my favorite movie, that's probably The Karate Kid. Uh, Goodfellas is probably second. And I will always watch Goodfellas if it's on. And it's a brilliant, brilliant movie. And I can't wait to talk to Glenn Kenny about this book. And I can't wait to read the book. Uh, and I know I have a copy coming. And I believe we have a chance to give a copy away. So we'll be doing that, and that's the first new edition. The other one is another one I'm very excited about. It's by uh, Jeff Duncan, who once had a book on here in the book club. One of the very first one it was called From Bags to Riches about the Saints. And his new book, Peyton and Breeze, The Men Who Built the Greatest Offense in NFL History, uh, is going to be released on October 13th, 2020. Uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to Jeff Duncan about that. So this is where the book club stands right now. Thank you to Jeff Perlman uh, for letting us promote another one of his books, Three Ring Circus. In a second, you'll hear Jason Cole as we say goodbye to Elway, A Relentless Life. We still have to talk to Brandon Sneed about Sooner. And today officially marks the beginning of Peyton and Breeze, The Men Who Built the Greatest Offense in History by Jeff Duncan. And Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas by an author named Glenn Kenny. I'm really excited about both of those books. All right, let's take a break, and we'll be right back with Jason Cole.
Our next guest today is a graduate of Stanford. And he was actually at Stanford at the same time as the subject of his next book, Elway, A Relentless Life. He's making his debut on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Jason Cole. Hey, Jason, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. How are you, Steve? Good. I love the book Elway. I have 19 pages or something left, but I'm pretty much done. Uh, <laughs> while I had, while I was waiting for you to call, I finished another 20 or so, but, uh, I have a funny story to tell you. So I was doing some research for the interview and I had known mm-hmm. you, I had known you went to Stanford because you, it's like the first thing you read about in the book. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. I usually, I usually, uh, bring people into their, to the show with their college fight song. So I'm always looking for that. Um, and I'm reading this bio of you and I'm just kind of reading along and I'm like, man, this is really interesting. Like he's had an interesting life, 16 years old. He got a heart transplant and I'm like reading it and I'm just like, wow, this is crazy story. Then I go back up to the top and I realize that at some point it went from your bio to the bio mm-hmm. of a soccer player that you had written about. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering. I was like, yeah, that's that's actually Simon Keith, (laughs) who I did write a book about, and who did have a heart transplant. I think at age 20, the donor was either 17 or 18. Okay, yeah. Um, And that's been, God, I think Simon, yeah, I'm pretty sure Simon is still alive, and he's the longest living heart transplant patient, I think, in the history of the world. And I mean, partly because he was so young when he got it. Um, but yeah, he did come back and play professional soccer. Simon did. Um, and that was a fun book to, to write. And, um, you know, I went to England and found the parents of the donor and that was great, but, um, it's probably not quite as popular. Uh, he's not as popular a figure as John Elway is. That's certainly, the case so um simon keith was a wonderful one if anybody ever wants to pick up hearts for the game um i think it's worth a movie but we're here to talk about john elway so sure let's proceed to that <laughs> <laughs> and you also uh wrote about ocho cinco and you covered the dolphins um mm-hmm. which is interesting because they of course had a famous 1983 quarterback as well um, yes, in Marino. Covered Dan for I covered Dan for eight years. Yep, yep, exactly. So I thought that was interesting. I grew up, you know, not necessarily a Bills fan, but obviously living in Buffalo. Uh, Jim Kelly, another mm-hmm. one of the '83 boys, uh, played his career out here. So I was interested in LA. I've always been interested in that draft class. Uh, I enjoyed the Thirty for Thirty documentary on it, uh, and was looking forward when I heard about this to reading it. Uh, and was surprised, I think a lot of times when you read about a guy, it's interesting to find out who the some of the other stars of the book will end up being. And I thought his dad was one of the main yeah. stars. And he's someone that you talk about pretty much right in the beginning. And you think of some of the quarterbacks of dads or dads of quarterbacks, right? Like who was the guy, who was the quarterback from USC? I think it was USC. That had the really crazy dad. Oh, that's Marv Marinovich and Todd Marinovich. Right, Todd Marinovich yes. Was the quarterback and Marv Marv Marinovich was the, you know, Marv was crazy. Right. In terms of he thought he could create the robo athlete, and 
father was actually, you know, you know, absolutely a talented kid. Um, but he was raised in this environment. And, and, and I think it's important to point out where it was about become, becoming an athlete and following the strict regimen. And it wasn't his passion. It was his father's passion. Right. And I think, um, I think that just yeah. kind of clouds your stories like that get reported right. maybe a little bit more than, you know, the Jack Elways of the world. And I just really, I just really found him endearing. I just loved how, I love the approach, I, you know, the relationship him and John had, the the way yep. that he didn't pressure him to play play football at what was it San Jose State where he was. I, there's a funny line in the book where he he says, you know, he's drinking a couple scotch and sodas or whatever, and he's like, I must be the dumbest person in the world. I have the number one player in the country across the table uh, from I'm, me. I'm, yeah, I'm the dumbest some bitch in the world. <laughs> I had the greatest quarterback in the country across the breakfast table every morning. And- yeah, I just I'll let him get away. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, look, Jack is Jack is exactly what you talked about. He's an endearing character. He's funny. He's witty. He's a little homespun. Um, he's a coach. He has the sensibilities of a coach, but he allowed his son to become his own man, um, and he nurtured the passion rather than directing it and there's a and there's a very key and, and difference and i think about this a lot of times because look i obviously i coached my own kids a little bit and um and i found that it was better later on when i allowed other people to coach them and i could just stand off on the side and encourage and because because the difference and you don't understand this when you're raising your own kids is there's a line between being the boss of a team, being coach. And, and again, it's not always really serious. I mean, sometimes you're just talking about youth sports, but you're the person that everybody's looking at going, you're directing the team, right? So you're sort of the boss. And there's an interesting being the boss and being the person who's there to support somebody and nurture somebody and be a parent. So being a boss is different from being a parent. I think that a lot of the times people miss that distinction and you end up with you know a, a, a relationship that is, is not as pure and I think Jack recognized that um, intuitively and I think that Jack said to himself I'm going to stay out of this and let him go pl- just go play you know and, and you know and par- in part because Jack was a coach himself and he had his own responsibilities but he also said, I'm going to sit here and make sure that he's happy doing what he's doing and push him towards that, that, that passion and desire. And that worked. It worked perfectly with John Elway because they became, Jack and John became basically friends. You know, it's the dream that you have as a parent is you raise a kid and then you have this bond and this relationship which is in a sense unbreakable and doesn't have any tension, you know, doesn't have the kind of tension that a lot of other parent child relationships have. I mean, I think Jack and John were perfect that way. Yeah. And one last thing about Jack as a person who's been a saints fan since 1987, I have to appreciate his acknowledgement of the greatness of Drew Brees at the very beginning. He was Mm -hmm. in at the beginning on Brees. And I I appreciated that little anecdote in the story as well. Uh, you were at the you were at Stanford when John was. Yeah, and, I'm a year behind. I'm yeah, a, I'm class of '84. And I was listening to I listened to a lot of old episodes or interviews segments of the Howard Stern show, 
And I was listening uh-huh. I was listening to him interviewing while well, I was reading this. I was listening to an interview he did with JFK Jr. And after JFK uh-huh. Jr. left, someone called and was talking about their experience of going to college with him and like being at a party with him and he got like ushered in and stood in the corner and like you know, there was like a line to meet him and it's just kind of this interesting thing. And I was thinking like, oh, that it's interesting because I'm reading this book about Elway. And, uh, you know, Jason was there at the same time and just wondering if, what was it, uh, what, so was it, what was it like? Yeah. Like, is there anything the there? Campus? You know, like, did you see Elway like in the dining hall with sweatpants on and like eating an apple or. Uh, no, I, I saw like, the most of the time that I saw Elway was um, when I, you know, look, when you're a college student, you, you know, you do, you do plenty of stuff to raise, you know, money. So, sure. um, you know, I, I would ref, I would ref uh, intramural games. Same you know, all the time. Yeah, I did and that too. Go, yeah, go yeah. make ten bucks a game or yeah. twelve bucks a game, whatever it was, and and so you know he'd play intramural softball with his buddies. You know, it was it was pretty low key softball. It was basically bring out bring out a bunch of beers and play softball, right? Um, and or he played intramural basketball, which was a little bit more intense with his with his um, baseball teammates and and football teammates. Um, so I would ref him in games and you'd see him once you'd see him going around campus. But, you know, I think there's a big difference between as great as Elway was, he wasn't a Kennedy. Sure. Um, and you know, he, he didn't come in as royalty already. Um, he developed that reputation as royalty as we watched it. But in a lot of ways, he was just a you know he was just another high achieving student at a school with lots of kids who dream about that, um, and he also did a lot to kind of stay out of the limelight, which is again something that Jack emphasized. He didn't want a lot of attention, whereas some guys parade it. You know, you're the you're the best quarterback in the country, and it's like, oh, I'm going to stay in the middle of the quad of the quad and you know wait for girls to come up and. You know, guys would tell me how great I am. He, you know, Elway wasn't about that. He lived in a frat that was on kind of the distant edge of Fraternity Row. Um, he hung out there with his football buddies. You know, he'd play some sports and, and pretty much go to class. But, you know, I mean, the guy's extraordinarily busy trying to ba- balance uh, a football and baseball career. Sure. So, like, there, was, there wasn't – he just wasn't hanging out a lot. Right. So – you know, there was, I don't get the sense that there was an aura like that. Yeah, when you watch it, when he came around, it's like, oh, there's Elway. And then it was like, move on. Sure. Yeah, when I, I was at college at Fredonia State, and we had a D3 hockey All-American at the school, and there was a lot of buzz when he'd walk around, too. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm just joking around. Uh, well, it's a true story, but I'm joking <laughs> around, too. Uh, <laughs> um Whoever's the, the big man on campus, you always get a little right. bit of respect. Did Elway yeah, so. did Elway mash in that softball game? He he bombed that ball a lot. I know it's just for fun, but did he crack it four hundred well, feet? Well, I, mean, I, I will explain it? that. Uh, I will explain that at Stanford at the time. I don't know what they do now, but I'm sure I'm sure it's similar. Um, they play with those. Have you ever played with the Chicago style softball? Yeah, one of those like eighteen inch things. Yeah, that, that starts to mush up. Yeah, uh, that was our. That was it. So I mean, it was really low key. Gotcha. Softball, when I say it was, so yeah, I mean, he hit it hard compared to everybody else. Um, but it's not like it's not like um, 
he was hitting 400 foot shots sure. with a regular softball. It was like, yeah, you match the thing. The, the biggest, the most impressive thing is how he threw it. Because when he threw that thing, he threw it like sort of like normal people throw a regular softball. That was that was the thing that kind of jumped off my uh, off my uh, my memory when I watched him when I watched him play. Now, I've been around hockey a lot in my life, and one thing I've noticed about the best players is when they skate, the it just sounds different than when I skate. You know, like the way oh, they yeah. when they the way they cut. The ice, I guess, just creates a different sound than the way I do. So I'm always interested. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, when you watch great athletes move, and um, it is a very different. Like you, I, I, a lot of time, when you listen to people sprint, and I say listen to people sprint because most people watch people sprint, right? right. Yeah, the sounds are something. What I really yeah. do, is I like to turn my, I like to turn my back, and I just like to listen. And you hear when normal people run. You hear that slap of of a of you know their feet hitting the ground. When great athletes run, you don't hear anything. It's just a very very quiet sound for for them as they move around. So you're exactly right. Um, there's a grace, there's a coordination that that great athletes move with that is different um, than normal people. And, you know, you watch it. It's like watching Elway's explosiveness and quickness when I was in college. And, uh, you know, again, I remember this throw against USC and Ronnie Lott, which I mentioned in the book, where he's literally, Elway is literally um, scrambling for like 12 seconds. And that's an eternity in a play. And he, and he does these two spins away from Georgia Chica um, you know, Chica's got him dead to rights once he spins away. He roll, he, you know, and then he's, Chica's got him dead to rights. The second time he spins away, makes Chica look like a, a bull charging through a bull ring <laughs> in Mexico. Um, and then all of a sudden he just finds, you know, Kenny Marjoram who's at the back of the end zone. He's like, 65 yards downfield and Ronnie Lott is in coverage, right? And we're watching this thing. And Ronnie Lott is one of those, you know, supreme athletes that I just described. And he beats Ronnie Lott with a throw over Ronnie Lott's head. And I talked to Ronnie about it. Ronnie just describes it of that time when you meet an athlete who is just the rare breed, like the Ronaldo Nehemiah's, you know, the great Olympian hurdler, you know, where it's like, okay, I should know what a great athlete can do, but this guy even surprised me. And, you know, and, and Ronnie goes on in the book to explain yep. what it was like to face Elway that first time and this incredible play. And I remember that play distinctly um, from, you know, sitting in the stands watching it as a fan. And you just go, oh my God, the things that this guy can do both with his legs and his evasiveness and then to be able to throw a football like that are just, you know, outstanding. Like I've seen a lot of guys with great arms, you know, I've seen Jamarcus Russell and Drew, and Drew Bledsoe and, you know, Jeff George through one of the, through probably the prettiest volume levels I've ever seen, stuff like that. Nothing compares to the combination of skills that Elway had you know, the physical tools that he had. Right. There's a book that came out 
and I was going to look to see if you were in it, but I forgot to do it. I can't remember the author's name, Eric something, but it was called I Was There, and it was a bunch of sports writers writing about... Mm -hmm. You know. I'm not in that one, but okay. Yeah. But okay. you were at the, you were at, a, you had, but probably a story that could have been in it, right? Because you were at the, I think I read it right. I have, a, I have a few, fortunately. I've been, yeah. you know, I've had, yeah, as you said, I've had an interesting career. Um, but the I famous one, obviously, more things, as a, yeah. more as a fan, being at the band in the field game. Um, being, yeah, being on the field, uh, being on the field in the stands. Right. Let me just clarify this. I was in the stands for the game where the band runs on the field. You know, the, the band is on the field. To Emmy. Uh, you don't have to say it. Um, <laughs> sorry. I forgot you're on the Stanford it, side. It, I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It, unnecessary. It yeah, um, I can so, imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it, now the farther away you get from it, you realize, look, that was a piece of history, right? And this is an amazing thing. And I remember that game so distinctly because, because it was very poorly officiated and, and that's not, I'm not trying to gripe about Cal or anything like that. It just was. Okay. Sure. Um, but then that last play is just, it's, it's nuts, right? It's craziness. Mayhem. And the fact is that, that if that play happened today, with replay and modern technology and review of by fist, like I don't think it happens, right? I think that they just say, no, no, no we're waving this whole thing off, and you know, we're we're doing it again, which would, be, in some sense, be a shame. Yes, as a Stanford person, I would like to have that happen, so right. we don't have to deal with that embarrassment. But it is a piece of history, and it is, and it is something special, and it is an amazing moment given the tension within the game, right? And what, what was created that day, you know, some bad calls here, some bad calls there, um, you know, some great plays by Cal along the way, some, some amazing plays by Stanford along the way. And then this great drive, which everybody forgets about, you know, Elway leads this amazing drive yeah. to set up a field goal and win, and win the game for us, although it didn't turn out that way, but we should have won the game. And then we make the mistake of calling timeout with eight seconds left instead of letting it, you know, um, you know, go down to three seconds or two seconds. Right. Which then means we had to kick off. And I remember standing in the stands as this was going on. And my friend who's now a heart surgeon at Stanford. <laughs> Show off. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and his big, we're both big sports fans. And, as soon as we called timeout and I'm looking and I'm just looking going, Hey, like, why do we do that? And my, and he turns and he goes, we have to kick off now. And I'm like, yeah, we'll be all right. It's yeah. And then we weren't all right. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it, and it just, it, it was nuts. And I remember, you know, what we did before that game, what we did after that game. Unfortunately, one of my buddies had to go visit a former girlfriend who was a, you know, who was a tri Delta Cal that was miserable. Sounds a terrible it, yeah. experience. Yeah, sounds it. Um, but but the game itself is just uh, it, it's amazing because I think it showed off Elway's you know competitive spirit. It showed off what he was capable of. There's this great fourth and seventeen throw that he makes. There's this there's this moment in that uh, you know going into that fourth and seventeen play because imagine being on fourth and seventeen having the game on the line right at that point, and he just looks at guys and goes you know just get open right. 
And Emil Harry did that, and Elway throws this incredible strike that is, you know, similar to the, one of the plays that he makes, um, you know, on the throw to Mark Jackson for the on on the you know the third and twenty play against Cleveland at Cleveland on the drive. It's a yeah. very similar kind of throw to that, um, which is just arm strength and overpowering the defense and, and making a throw the defense can't even react to. Um, it was awesome until we had to kick off again. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point too because, you know, as a protector of the legacy of Drew Brees, you know, like in 2011, he led two drives, mm-hmm. you know, in that San Francisco 49ers game that would be legendary except for the defense couldn't stop Alex Smith, you know. And then a couple years yeah. ago, he led he, – he took the team down the field and won the game twice in Minnesota, but the defense couldn't stop the Minnesota Miracle, you know, and – there are the moments. There are you the know. moments that are forgotten. Yep. Because you're at the wrong end of the results, and you're exactly right. Like there, some there are stupendous things that that athletes do that get lost in the binary the binary side of the operation, which is whoever win, whoever won, gets remembered. Whoever lost you know, is, is forgotten. Now there are, it's, it's not absolute. You know, there are some losing efforts that have been uh, remembered, you know, like the 1972 U S basketball team. You know, we, we remember that ending a, a lot and talk about it a lot. And there are a few others, but mostly, um, you know, history is written by the victors. Sure. And I know that that's sort of a, uh, that's an ugly quote also from the attorney general recently, but it's true that you know, it's like the spoils go to the victors. Well, right. the chance to write history goes to the victors, and that's what we remember. And we remember the the play. We remember the play at Cal as they ran through the band, and Gary Terrell gets gets run over by Kevin Moen. We forget the fourth and seventeen strike that Elway throws to Emil Harry, and the amazing drive that plays out. Um, to get into field goal range for what should have been a triumphant last game for Elway in his college career and a possible bowl bid, but it didn't happen that way. You almost forget Elway was even there sometimes, to be honest. You know, well, most people don't even know that. Yeah, you know, most people look. Most people just go, "Oh, you were at that game, or that was amazing." This and that. And yeah, they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. The drive, you should have seen the drive by Elway. They were like, "Oh yeah, Elway." I'm like. <laughs> Well, speaking you have of, no idea. You have no idea what you missed. <laughs> speaking of drives, right? Because I was growing up, kind of learning to love football. You know, right mm-hmm. when Elway was going to his first few Super Bowls. You know, I can the first Super Bowl I remember was the Patriots and the Bears. Um, right. But I very much remember. You know, I had cousins in Cleveland, so I remember these. AFC Championship games. I remember the drive. I remember very, very clearly the fumble. Like I remember just sit, like looking in disbelief, thinking like, "I can't believe that happened," you know, because he looked like he was going to walk right into the end zone. You know, like I just couldn't believe it. And yeah, poor Ernest, poor Ernest Biner. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, good man too. Really yeah. good man. Interesting couple of years of games in Cleveland too. In that. Um, period is they had the game in 89 against the bills where ronnie Harmon drops a touchdown um in the end zone and uh, jim kelly threw a pick but um yeah elway 
kind of makes his his um you know you know really becomes a superstar in, in those years but he had he carried around for a while kind of that um that kind of yeah but thing right and um, well it's the, the, it's the underachiever up until that point people don't appreciate Elway's talent because he's not doing the statistical things that people you know use to measure greatness right like the touchdown passes that Marino throws you know 48 touchdown passes by Marino in 1984 in his second season in the league or he's not doing anything close statistically to what Montana is doing along with the winning that's going on in San Francisco. Right. Um, and the age of the quarterback is starting to explode. Kelly shows up in Buffalo. They start to, you know, not quite get it going then, but you can see the, the, the beginning of it, you know, Warren moon and that era is starting to light it up yep. a bit because he comes over from Canada. You can see the game evolving into a passers game, right? And Elway's not doing that. And people are like, well, he's just not that good. Well, no, it wasn't bad. He was playing in an archaic offense that was, you know, written out in the 1970s and executed by a coach who believed in, in ball control and running it first. You know, Dan Reeves was that way. And this is where people have a hard time distinguishing system from talent. And how do you, how do you play the game often determines what the stats look like. And people don't get it. Like, you know, Dan Reeves just didn't believe in throwing the running backs. He didn't believe in throwing the tight ends. He didn't believe in short routes. He believed in a this old Tom Landry offense, which was you run twenty yard digs and you run com- you know deep comebacks and you run you throw over the top of the defense and you set it up with this power running game, which everybody kind of figures out how to stop. Um, and and so Elway's stuck in that. It does, however, create these moments where he's this great comeback quarterback and able to lift the team in the fourth quarter, that's a matter of circumstance a, a lot of the time. Like, in other words, like we're gonna, if we're going to play a low-scoring game and it's going to be 20-17, to 17, we're behind in the fourth quarter, yeah, the quarterback's all of a sudden going to win the game, if, especially if there's like four minutes left. So Reeves created these situations that Elway would then carry out a win and develop this reputation, but no game is bigger in that perspective than what you're talking about, which is the drive in Cleveland, right? Right. And, and how that executes. And the, and the really, the thing to me that stands out about the drive is not just the clutchness and, you know, the, the, you know, the play where the ball hits off of, you know, Steve, Steve Watson's rear and, and Elway catches it still and then throws the ball to Jackson with a 20 yarder or the running plays or, you know, the gifted throw or the, the touchdown pass, which is just, a missile that Mark Jackson catches, right? And he catches it in that end zone where there are dog bones, you know, like those milk right. bone dog bones are all yeah, right in front of the dog. Bone. Just crun- it, yep. Right. And you know, like it, you know, the, the, those milk bones are like crunching under everybody's feet as the <laughs> game is playing out. Right. Like uh-huh. it's just, this is crazy wild atmosphere and this crazy wild game and he force overtime and then they win in overtime and all of a sudden, Elway has put together something that people that's tangible that people can look at and go, oh, I see his greatness. And they go on to go to the Super Bowl, which doesn't end well because you know they're overwhelmed by um, 
NFC teams, which are just they're just superior teams. Right, right? and that happened to the Bills too. But right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Except twenty five. Yeah, except for twenty five. Well, yeah, for a yeah. twelve year period, the AFC just got crushed. But the thing that 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 jumps out at me as I think back to that, and I never realized it until I went back and really studied the drive is. They had one running play early in, in, in it, and then another running play early. And then the last, I think it's the last 11 plays of that drive. Basically, Dan Reeves, you know, puts his hands in his in his trench coat pocket. Right, go for it, John. Trench coat, yep. And he basically says, John, you're in, you're in control. Right. And the last 11 plays are either passes or, or runs by Elway out of a scramble situation. So they're all pass plays called. It's all on his shoulders, and he executes it perfectly and does it and does this, you know, amazing drive in Cleveland into the dog pound and just, you know, just crushes the spirit of the Browns, which, you know, leads to some history later on. But in that moment, he shows his greatness. And Dan Reeves, instead of looking at going, wow, if I really let this kid take over, imagine what we could do. He holds the reins. He continues to hold on to the reins. And instead of saying, oh, look what Elway does. Look what Montana does. Look at what, you know, these other quarterbacks are doing around the NFL. Maybe I should let Elway do that kind of stuff. They continue to fight ultimately over how to run the offense and how to run the team. And I, I think it's there's a, a great irony that goes with the drive, which is it propels Elway to this higher level. At the same time, it is it just defines what his career is supposed to be about for the first ten years, instead of allowing it, it, it defines the limits of his career more than it defines the full greatness of what his career could have been the, the first 10 years. Well, one thing I was thinking about when I was reading the book, especially this part, was I was thinking about Breeze and Peyton, right? And the beautiful symmetry that they've had th- since 2006 and how it's created this unbelievable relationship and on the field, off the field. And I was thinking about it last night, watching Mahomes and thinking about like, oh, he found the perfect coach. You know, Andy Reid's the perfect coach for him. And then I was thinking about this book and this interview in Elway, and it's like, man, you know, too bad. You know, too bad Elway didn't have a Peyton or whatever, you know. Well, he didn't have it. He, he eventually had, he eventually had um, Shanahan, and he had Shanahan as an assistant, but he had Shanahan, you know, for the final, right. you know, five years of his career. And that works out fine. Uh, yeah, that works. Years of his yeah. It works out great. It's stupendous. But, it was not, it was, it's it just, and, and I think that that's part of it is, is there's this great collision of cultures. And I talk about it in the book where you have this coach and Dan Reeves who's very much grew up and, you know, you got to be loyal to the head coach. The head coach is the supreme being. That's the culture that he grew up in both in the South and in playing football and that leads to this man who's expecting that to be how he runs his team at a time when the when the rules change drastically in football and make it a quarterback passing game because the people who run football realize we can't play football like we did in the 70s and expect people to keep watching we got to open this thing up and reeves just never adjusted 
So it's it's a terrible marriage. The sportscasters are here with Jason Cole. His book Outlay a Relentless Life uh, has been part of the book club. I just about finished reading it over the last bunch of days. Really enjoyed it. Jason, I know we've gone a while here. A couple more things I want to talk about before I let you go. First, mm-hmm. do I have to def- sure. do I have to defend hockey here? Or um, no, you, you can just leave it alone. You're, okay. you're Joe Sackick. You know, <laughs> your your whole you know the like the um, the Stanley Cup isn't a major look, championship. You're, you're from, look, you're you're from, you're from Buffalo. Uh huh. Okay? You're you're not. You didn't grow up in California. You don't live in Florida. Right, but we're talking about the state of Colorado you, you as think, well. You think, Denver. You, look, you grew up in a place where you think hockey is important, and I'm not going to like have a big argument with you about whether <laughs> hockey is important. I know it's not. You uh, believe it is. I, I, I wrote the book, so I win. Sure, I guess. I I, I think if we asked a thousand people, though, if the Stanley Cup is a major championship, I think maybe 997 of them are going to say yes. If if we ask a thousand people in Colorado, who's bigger, John Elway? Well, bigger, sure. Sack it. Okay, yeah, I have no so problem I, saying that I was bigger. I, I, win, I win. I just it's, I win. Like, yeah, but you're moving the goalposts there. Well, that's fine. I, I'm <laughs> if you read the book, I'll leave it at that. If you read the book, you'll know what uh, what Jason and I are. Are talking about there, the but Colorado Avalanche won the won a Stanley Cup. Yes, in 1996. Yeah, and but I I contend that that this is the first major championship, right? Professional, yeah, that people right. really pay attention at the professional level. Right. Stanley Cup is nice. I think they I had like a million it, people but, but parade in Denver that 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 year. But you know, it was like a million people at the parade for the Avs, but. People uh, define themselves based on the NFL, so there you go. Sure, fair enough. Uh, let me ask you this because I've asked Jeff Perlman this question, mm-hmm. um, who's mm-hmm. been on very recently, and also um, John Pessa, who wrote a pretty cool book called Yogi, uh, who was on recently. Um, uh-huh. So, 2020, um, the culture, the way it is now, you guys work so hard on these books. Um, you do mm-hmm. things like coming on podcasts like this and spending 45 minutes or whatever talking to a jabroni mm-hmm. like me to sell these books. You work- we, 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 we like to refer to you as a reader. A reader, okay, um, not a jabroni. That's a new word, though. <laughs> no, no. I yeah. like that the dictionary is... I know what a jabroni is. You're not. You're a reader. Okay. okay and a, a consumer and the person that we respect because you actually took the time to read the book. And I appreciate that. The, that, uh, that word is officially in the dictionary now. I, I, I just read recently. Okay. Yeah. Um, here's my point. I was, I'm following you on Twitter now and your Twitter, um, like Jeff's and like Jonah's is very mm-hmm. much political and, uh-huh. um, very much political in a certain direction. doesn't matter what direction. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a liberal guy, right? So, but I mean, what I, I mean, like, that, I that's not that, that, yeah. that's not the point, though. Like the point is, is that it's the point I'm trying to make is we live in a culture very much. I'm this or I'm that. Uh, you have drawn the line in the sand where you are. Twitter very much is a place I think you can't change people's minds, but you can sell things, right? Like if I yeah, wasn't sure. if I wasn't trying to sell this podcast every week i'd probably bail from twitter and like jeff said that you know like oh i'm on there to promote my stuff a lot of people feel that way 
Like, mm-hmm. I think you can sell books on Twitter. I don't think you can change political minds on Twitter. All three of you guys very much potentially hurt. Like, I know for a fact, Jeff Perlman, we talked about this. Jeff Perlman hurt himself very much in Wisconsin with his Favre book because of his Twitter account. Um, so I guess I'm just asking. I asked those guys, too. Like, why? why? You, about you, know, you know what I mean? Like, why not just... Not do that. It doesn't. I mean, look, there are times. There, look, if if this was you know, George Bush's presidency, mm-hmm. I, I probably wouldn't do do this because either either George Bush, but particularly George W. Bush, and he he was know, the more polarizing he, for sure. He was more polarizing. Yeah. Um, People forget how polarizing he was actually. Right, but he's yeah. not even close to this guy. Like there were, you know, I didn't think about George Bush and his antics every single day we have a president who he's on twitter every day too trying to change people's minds right and he right right well, it's just it's ridiculous right i mean he looks like a clown it, yeah it, right and, yeah and so this is like there are some things more important than whether you sell a bunch of books or not now yeah this is my craft this is what i do i hope people buy books and i hope people understand that i can separate these two things like we can have a discussion about sports and we can have a discussion about politics um, if that's what you want to do. And, you know, and I think I'm a fairly balanced thinker, but if you don't, if you're not sitting here and looking over the last four years going, Hey, wait a sec, like, this is nuts. Like I got to say, I got to say something. Otherwise I'm complicit in allowing this. Like that's how I feel sometimes. Like if I don't say something, I'm part of the problem. And yeah, it, does that hurt me sometimes? And will people disagree with me? Okay, then I, I get that. Um, am I not going to change your mind? Yeah, I'm probably not going to change your mind. But maybe I'll make you think about something a little bit differently. And maybe you'll make me think about something a little bit differently. And I do that. You know, that happens a lot. I, I, you get into discussions with people who are support the other side, and they may make a point about something, and you think it through a little bit deeper. It, it's it's sort of like a real time you know political talk show, whether that's on Fox or whether it's on, on NBC or CBS. So I'm willing to do that because I don't want to sit there and just watch those shows and be glued to a television. I'll do it on Twitter. I'll do it on Twitter. So I'm okay with that. Um, is it take away from what I'm there for for sports? Some people would view it that way. If they view it that way, well, you know, I'm sorry. But there right. are some things that are more important than than you know, just jabbering about you know. Look, there are thousands of people on Twitter who are trying to get a slice of the sports world, and I salute them for trying. I've been in that world for a long time, right? They're trying to get attention, whether it's you know somebody new, a new fresh face who's really smart like Mina Kimes, or whether it's an older person who's trying to hang on, um, like me or somebody else, like you know who's there trying. The jabroni what, like me. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, we're, whatever. <laughs> right. I mean, um, like, whatever, wherever you are, like, talking about sports is really easy. Okay? It, 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 it's, not, it's not difficult. It's not hard. There are not a lot of new points out there being made. You know, I've watched, I've watched literally thousands of games in my life, and... I, I listen to commentators like 
people who are as smart as the guys, you know, Lewis Riddick and Brian Greasy last night will call in that game um, as, as the analyst. There's nothing they're saying to me that's new. I'm hoping that there's something that they will say to me that's new, but I've heard it all, all before. Sure. And nothing's being reinvented. Okay. So I want something deeper. And that something deeper was this exercise in writing this book about a human being who for 40 years I've witnessed him chase something, chase glory. And when you have unique people like that, you want to explain that. So that was the challenge in Elway. And so to get back, but to get back to your original question and not go too far astray, like, like who's the president right now is important. All right. Who's on the Supreme Court is important. This the Elway book. Look, buy it, enjoy it, have fun with it. I hear you. I do hear you. Um, mm-hmm. I am very different than you politically, but I'm not a Trump guy. Um, you know, I'm very much, pretty much a. That's okay. I'm a born. I'm a born and bred Reagan Republican. You know, like a New York, East Coast Reagan Republican. So, and, and, and there and there is part of that. Look, there is part of that which I agree with. Okay. Right. Well, I think now, that the, we, the middle is very much now a mix of left and right to some degree. Right. But hold on. Just let me finish my point. Real yeah. quick. Um, sure. Okay. You know, in 2016, I punted, you know, and I have the luxury in New York to do that. I just wrote in a Republican governor, you know, cause I really didn't want to mm-hmm. vote for Trump and I'd never vote for Hillary, you know, and I'm sure I'll do that again. Um, it's easy to make that decision when you live in New York because, you know, blue right it's a solid it's a solid in florida right yeah so you live in florida you have you definitely you know have to make uh you definitely need to cast your vote the way you you want it to go um Mm -hmm. here's my point my point is more about twitter i think and that Mm -hmm. i just don't believe that the platform lens for any form of real discourse really it's so hard in those short responses with no tone you know no body language no voice just Mm -hmm. nothing it's just so short you know like you know smarter people than me like tom verducci and um, a a really great writer named matt crossman is like you know i'm not on there because i just can't i write a lot you know when i write i write lots of words i can't do it in that small thing i just think the platform doesn't do anything for politics i think that people reading it on there are very much about their echo chamber, whatever one they're in. Um, either saying like, oh, look at this idiot on the other side or look at this smart guy on my side. It doesn't go beyond that. But I do think it is, a per- for whatever reason, a persuasive place to promote less, um, less uh, what's the word, maybe polarizing things like a book, maybe benign, I don't know. Just uh, I think you can... I think it maybe this when I first started it and really liked it, I was talking to SL Price who wasn't on yet and it was like, why do you like this? And I said, I like being able to turn a game on in my living room by myself and just watch it with all these other people. You know, like I think uh-huh. it works best like that. I just don't think it works at all for the politics. So I think it's a waste. Um, I think it works good for a thing like selling a book. And I guess what I've been asking you guys and all three have disagreed with me, which is fine. Uh, You've all basically said the same thing um, is that I don't think you're going to win any votes. I think you could sell some books. 
but I do think you're losing some sales and you work so hard on these things that I just, I don't get it, I guess. But I hear you. I understand, I, I mean, I understand look, what I, you're I, saying. I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. Okay. I know I alienate people, right? I know, but that's, you know. And like sometimes it's not like. even, you're not, sometimes I don't even think the alienation is like a guy that disagrees with you necessary. Like I mute so many people because I just can't, I got to get out of it sometimes. You know, like it's I, I, so look, overwhelming I, I, that like sure. I just can't hear I, I another mean, thing, you know? Like, well, yeah, I don't yeah, even what, follow what, what, people I like. My wife says every night. Yeah. My, look, my wife said last night she just wants the election to be over. Oh. Right? Like, she doesn't want to talk about it anymore. Yep. And I get it. I completely understand that. Um, I guess I'm, I'm more, and I, and, I, and I hate myself when I get angry with people on Twitter and I try and keep it as civil as I possibly can. And that, and when I get angry, like, I, you know, that's, that's a problem. And I understand that. Um, and I, but I think that Twitter is a great place for information. I that's think it's a great true. place for people to, it's for, for people to, you know, banter about things. Yeah. It's hard to have a deep conversation, but you can occasionally do it. And I think it's also a really great place to me to, you know, just see what's going on in the world in a very, you know, in a very quick way, rather than having to have the news on constantly or rather rather than having to check, you know, different sites. Like, I can find stuff. I can find out what's going on in the world very quickly by going to Twitter and sorting through it, um, sorting through what, the, you know, it's important. And plus, I like, there's a lot of Twitter that I'm really entertained on, like, you know, um, you know, you know, black sport, is it black sports online? Um, right. Some of the parody you know, accounts, Littell, things like that. Yeah. Robert Littell is just a genius and, 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 and entertaining people, right. With the information that he put, puts out. But look, I think it's going to change again after the election. Um, you know, maybe for better, maybe for worse, depending on what the result looks like. Um, well, I think there'll be a little chaos yeah, I, after, no matter what. But then I think okay. it will settle in a little bit for a while. Like in 2016. Right, the result will be the, the result. Right. Will be the result. And there's a little chaos at first. Like in 2016, there was some protesting and mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of rioting. I don't remember exactly. Pro let's just stick with protesting. There was some of that for sure. And then it just kind of settled yeah. in for a while, I remember. You know, and then maybe like yeah. about a year ago, it kind of maybe with the impeachment, like around that time, it really started to. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, ebbs, it ebbs and flows. But yeah. I will say this for you: you know, Elway, Elway is in your corner, so you can. Um, <laughs> yeah, he he's much more of a conservative guy, and um, he's yeah. But I think what's smart about him is he's a little bit closer to the center, where and he understands social programs. He understands, um, and and he talked about this on TV. You know, some sometimes you know examining our gun laws because he lived in Colorado during the Aurora shooting and sure. during, um, uh, well, well, I think the high school, the high, the high school shooting. Columbine. I mean, that had effect. Yeah. Yeah. Colum yeah. Columbine had an effect on when he were like, he was the playing day the that time. he retired. Yeah. I well, well, he, he was going to retire then and he was going to announce it on the day 
but it was either it was either going to be the day of the Columbine shooting or the day after he was going to announce his retirement, and they had to completely scrap it because you know his retirement was certainly not as important as the news coverage that was going on with Columbine. He recognized that. I think they they pushed it back a couple of weeks, but yeah, he's he has witnessed it in Denver very closely, and and it makes his political thinking. Yeah, it makes his uh, his brain sit there and go, okay, what are we supposed to do here? And well, I'm probably like I'm probably like Elway. Yeah, I'm probably like Elway because I'm not religious, you know. So I'm not like part of the quote unquote religious right. And I'm not a gun guy, you know, like I'm just, I've never even held a, you know, I don't know anything about a gun. I don't really, you know, I guess like from a rights, yeah. from a rights perspective, you know, sometimes I can be swayed in that direction, but you know, it's not a passion of mine either way. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, like one thing you said was like, you know, who's on the Supreme Court matters, you know, and I think that highlights the dilemma some of us have had since Trump is sort of hijacked. Like I, I always tell this story. My brother and I are both pretty big conservatives. And if you remember the very first debate and the election cycle last time for the Republican primary, I think there was like 16 people there. And I remember me and my brother, we ranked from one to 16 who we would want to get the nomination. And I had Trump 16 and he had Trump 15. You know, so, you know, I try to explain this to people like, you know, not every, uh, you know, like sometimes, you know, in this two party system and the way things are set up, you see, you throw your hands up sometimes, you know what I mean? And it's like, well, what the hell do I, what are we, what are we doing? You know, like, I don't know what we're doing. I, I would love, I would love to, I, like, I would, I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation to get into a deep political Yeah, debate. we're out of time for that probably anyway, but. Right. Yeah. I would just say this, if you really want to reform the system, make the election cycle like two months instead of 14 months. Oh, that's that just sounds simplest, like a, that's the simplest way to change it. Doesn't that sound like just a like a nice? I don't know. That, that, yeah, like God, it would be it would be it would be awesome if all we had to do is listen to two months of this crap. Right. It's it's, it's, it's and I say that both from both sides. Yeah. Oh, it's I don't want because I don't. I'm tired yeah. of the Democratic part of it side of it. I would also lighten the load in terms of fundraising. If we do it like Britain, which is Britain does like a I think a six week cycle now. You know that's a little short. You know, for three hundred thirty million, yeah, yeah, for three hundred thirty. So I get it, but if you made two or three months instead of, I mean, it's really a, it, it it has become a two year process. All right, and that and, and that sucks a, the life out. Yeah, of it. Anyway, for a four a four year term. I mean, come on. All right, the book yeah. is called Elway: A Relentless Life. It's by Jason Cole, who's been nice enough to what we're at fifty minutes. Um, one last thing you'll but, have to edit. You'll have to edit this down. <laughs> no, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. I put it all out. Um, all right. One last thing. We'll go on this. Uh, I, I was interested in the baseball part. You know, I was interested in Steinbrenner kind of making um, a show in the book. And, and there's this one part where I laughed hard. I laughed. You know, remember, I'm a New Yorker, you know, even though I'm in Western. Sure. I'm in Western New York, but everyone here is a Yankees fan pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. There's this one part where someone goes to talk to steinbrenner before the draft and uh he gives his rundown elway and steinbrenner's like all right we're drafting him our heads roll and the guy's like i'm telling you not to draft him and that was gary hughes yeah the oh, guy that, who scouted him from the west coast that cracked um, that cracked me up and i enjoyed steinbrenner's role in this any any quick thoughts on elway the baseball player and uh his relationship with with steinbrenner I remember elway was just very turned off playing in the new york pen league right by the buses and the grind of baseball but 
Any kind of final yeah, thoughts I think on ba- that? I, I, yeah, I think baseball made him understand the grind of, of that, you know, that I think it was almost two months that he played in Oneonta in the New York Penn League. Um, I think it made him understood that baseball baseball is mentally hard. It, it does grind me down when you have to play every single day. You have to deal with success or failure every day. It's not like being shot out of a cannon. Right. That That's what he said. Like yeah. You, you prepare. You, yeah. You prepare an entire week to be, you know, to have this sort of electric three hours of Sunday and then you deal with the result. Right. Um, I think it's cemented in his mind that he really loved football and he liked playing baseball and he enjoyed it. And he made, you know, he had, he, he, he had fun with it. And I think that he was intrigued by Steinbrenner and the notion of being a Yankee and the other side is his agent, Marvin Demoff was a big Yankees fan. Now Marvin didn't let that cloud his judgment in terms of pushing John one way or the other, because he knew that ultimately it was up, up to the client. But I think that there was, there were some real things within baseball that made it possible. Um, it was never probable, but that story you're talking about with, with, Steinbrenner. Yeah, I love that in the book. Where Gary, right. where Gary Hughes says, you know, look, he's a great player. He's this, he's that. Steinbrenner's sitting there. Well, we got to take him in the second <laughs> round. And Hughes keeps going. He keeps going. Hey, wait a second. He's not going to play. And then, and then Steinbrenner, like, is not listening to anybody because Hughes is saying to everybody else, and saying, hey, look, don't drop this guy. He's not going to play for us. He's the best quarterback in, in, in the country. And he's going to be, you know, high draft pick. And, you know, Steinbrenner keeps going, well, we got to take this guy. We got to take this guy. And then, you know, yeah, he takes, he takes his own, he morphs his own thoughts, Steinbrenner does, into, we got to take this guy and he's going to play for us or you guys are getting fired. It's like, that's when Hughes goes, hey, wait a second. Don't right. put this on me. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's good, but don't draft him. I'm saying that. And he's like, he yells it <laughs> basically at Steinbrenner, which is just famous. And everybody goes silent because they're thinking Steinberg's just going to fire him right at the right. moment. Duly noted. Just yeah. Duly noted. Yeah. And, and like, it passes up. But what I love about that whole story, and the point that one of the points I make is Steinbrenner loved football players who were great, great baseball players. Elway was not the only football player he ever drafted. He drafted Bo Jackson. He drafted Deion Sanders. He drafted Drew Henson. He drafted Dante Culpepper. He drafted lots of guys who ended up playing professional football because he believed in high achievers. He believed in unique athletes. He believed in star power, guys like that, to make your organization better. Um, He just, he really, really loved people who were driven. And Elway fit perfectly into what he wanted. Um, he wanted people like himself who were driven to be great. And I appreciate that so much. I mean, I hated Steinbrenner because I hate the Yankees. I'm a Dodger fan, right? Sure. But that's, a, but that's okay. But you need to have, you need to have your, your, your villains, right? And for, for me, Steinbrenner was a villain. For you guys, he was a hero. That's fantastic, okay? That's part of the soap opera that is sports. But I, but I really appreciate the deeper, grander thinking of, I want greatness. I want to surround myself with greatness. I want us to 
try and achieve greatness. I want to take people like John Elway and whoever they go, ooh, wait a sec. If you're going to play for this organization, you better be special because this is what this dude wants. And that, to me, says something deeper about the commitment of Steinbrenner and why ultimately the Yankees were good. Yeah, sure, they were good because they had more money than everybody else in this don't don't kid yourself like they they maximized their resources they made sure that that they were good in the minors and that they had people and that they made good trades and that they acquired you know people who were again going to be great and going to be driven and that to me is is that that gets forgotten about Steinbrenner but it's really important and I think it plays a really important role in in the development of Elway. So it says a lot about the development of Elway as an athlete. And I think there's a little bit of that thing of like, you know, all athletes want to be musicians, all musicians want to be athletes. And then I think there's this other thing where like, I know like I'm always around hockey players. They all want to be golfers. You know, like every hockey player thinks mm-hmm. they're going to be a golfer. You know, Tony Romo thinks he's a uh, golfer. Football players, all football. Wanna, football players all want to play in the NBA. Right, yeah. So I think right maybe Elway, you know, thought he wanted to be a baseball player until he, you know, got on the bus for a bit and then he's like you know what shoot me out of the cannon every sunday uh the book is called yeah, yeah the book is called elway jason cole's the author he's on twitter it's at jason cole 62 do i have that right yep yep jason cole 62 um look i really enjoyed this i really enjoyed our talk thanks for all the time um, I don't know that you anticipated on going this long but i appreciate your honesty and the, the discourse um I think you and I would probably have some good battles, if you want to call them that. Um, oh, absolutely. And I would, I would enjoy that, Steve. Yeah. If, we wanted to do, if we wanted to do a political podcast, we could have fun with that. I think we probably wouldn't right. um, have a lot of people wanting to actually listen, but we, we would enjoy it <laughs> ourselves. And that, would be, and that would be okay. We would amuse ourselves, which is the most important thing in this. But uh, no, I, I look, I really appreciate the time. I appreciate you reading the book and, and having some intelligent discourse because a lot of people don't don't do this in this profession. I hope that your your listeners out there read it because I think there are, you know, look, there are a lot of sports biographies out there that will tell you, you know, the score and the, you know, what happened. They, but I think that what I really tried to do in this book is dive very deep into the motivations of the human being and what drives them to continue even at age sixty, after they've won at the highest levels, yeah, and I think you continued. That I trip. think you succeeded. I mean, just just from the very beginning of like talking about him getting dressed for the meeting with um, um, Bowen, you know, like I just got this feeling of like who he was, you know. And so I think you you really you succeeded. But thank you so much for allowing me the chance to just kind of read it with you and promote it. And uh, I appreciate Absolutely. you. And hopefully, I appreciate we can, hopefully, we can do it again soon. Absolutely. I want to thank Jason Cole for being on the podcast today. I also want to thank Jonah Tulis and Blake J. Harris for being on the podcast as well. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash sports underscore, or excuse me, sports dash casters. Uh, Twitter is at sports underscore casters. The email is the sportscasters at gmail.com. 
Uh, my friend Peter Winson, greetings from Allentown at GF Allentown Pod. Uh, he has a new episode. He recently did 87 WWF, which is my favorite uh, year of WWF. You guys know I'm a huge, huge WrestleMania 3 freak. So anytime Peter is talking 87, even though this is post-WrestleMania 3, I'm always excited. He did the 12-19-87 episode of Spotlight, uh, which is a honky versus Jake time. He also did 89 WWF, which I think is his favorite year recently. And he's been doing Greetings from Allentown Live with his friend Keith, where they look at a different volume of the best of WWF from Coliseum Home Video. And they recently did 10, volume 10 uh, of that one. So check that out as well. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to my friend Adrian Dater at a Dater on Twitter at col hockey now. Get there for all your Avalanche hockey draft news. Uh, Adrian is going to be on the next episode of the Sportscasters, season ten, episode twenty-one. I promised him. Uh, and also on October nineteenth, Monday night, I'm going to be on the Place to Be Nation podcast uh, with Justin Rosario and. Uh, Scott Criscolo, so I look forward to that. I'm also doing a episode of, it's with Jenny from uh, the Jenny position. Um, we're going to be doing a podcast where we watch a show on Pluto TV. Uh, we we did one once where we, I did one with her where I, it's called the Freaky Drive-In Theater or something where we did, we watched Sixth Sense. And I really want to be on this one show she does where she interviews people because I love being interviewed. But I don't know what's going on with that. I can't seem to get on the list. But she did allow me to be on this show. We're going to watch Artie Lang's Beer League. And I can't wait to do that. So I'll give you more information on that when I record it. Uh, But shout out to Jenny from the Jenny position. All right. With all that said, let's say goodbye to Eddie Van Halen. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, this is one last thing, died today at the age of 65. And he is, without any doubt, a guitar god, a rock legend, a hall of famer. Uh, A guy so versatile that he recorded the solo on Michael Jackson's Bad. And I know you guys know I hate Michael Jackson. Uh, But I do love a good Eddie Van Halen solo and he did a great one on bad way back in i think 1984 and a cool story now this is from eddie i'll just read this real quick he's talking about bad he says michael left to go across the hall to do some children's children's speaking record i think it was et or something so i asked quincy quincy jones what do you want me to do and he goes Whatever you want to do. And I go, be careful when you say that. If you know anything about me, be careful when you say, do anything you want. I listen to the song and I immediately go, can I change some parts? I turn to the engineer and I go, okay, from the breakdown, chop in this part. Go to this piece. Pre-chorus to the chorus out. Took him maybe 10 minutes to put it together. And I proceeded to improvise two solos over it. I was just finished the second solo when Michael walked in. And you know, artists are kind of crazy people. We're all a little bit strange. I didn't know how he would react to what I was doing, so I warned him before he listened. I said, look, I changed the middle section of your song. 
Now, in my mind, he's either going to have his bodyguards kick me out for butchering his song or he's going to like it. And so he gave it a listen and he turned to me and he went, Wow, thank you so much for having the passion to not just come in and play a solo, but to actually care about the song and make it better. Unreal story. I mean, the dude is the best guitar player I've ever seen live, and I've seen the worst tour ever. So I seen Van Halen in 2004. It was a reunion tour with Sammy Hagar. And it's not talking ill of the dead to say that Eddie was not his best on that tour. And it's widely criticized. His drinking was a little bit out of control. I know that this was strictly a business decision. Uh, you know, at the end of the night, Sammy would go one way, Eddie would go another way. Uh, but the Buffalo show, I don't know if it was one of the better ones. I don't know if I just appreciated being there. But I stood there all night in awe of what Eddie Van Halen could do on the guitar. And I'm so grateful I got to see it. You know, I think about whether it's Paula you know, or if it's her kids, or even my brothers, you know, I think about how honored I am to be able to tell them, you know, I've seen the Who play, you know, I've seen the Rolling Stones, you know, I've seen Pearl Jam 83 times, you know, I've seen Stone Temple Pilots with Scott Weiland, I've seen Nirvana at UB, I seen Chris Cornell. You know, and I got to see Eddie Van Halen. I got to see Van Halen play. And look, I know a lot of people, to them, Van Halen is just those first six records. Or however many it is with Dave. They just love Dave and they couldn't separate it. But to me, it's just two bands. It's Van Halen and Van Hagar. And I love them both for different reasons. And probably I like Van Hagar a little bit more. Uh, but it's really a mood thing, right? Like if I'm in the mood for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and party, and fun, man, Dave, that's where it's at. If I want something a little deeper, I go to I go to Sammy's stuff. If I want to hear great singing, I go to Sammy's stuff. You know, but if I just want to have fun, if I want to just rock a little bit, you really can't beat. Van Halen 1, Van Halen 2, you know, Diver Down, 1984. You know, I told the story, I think, recently about hanging out with my uncle and his friends. And I was obviously, you know, four years old in 1984, maybe even still three if it was before December. And I remember hanging with my uncle and all his friends who were like late teens and just listening to Jump, watching that video, running around, jumping every time. Uh, they said jump and kind of a cool story. So when Van Halen was about to play the Buffalo show in 2004, a newspaper called the art voice, a newspaper called the art voice did a contest where you could win Van Halen tickets. You had to like write a poem or something for them about Van Halen. And my friend's like, yo man, you gotta, you gotta sign up for this. Maybe you could win. You're good at poems. And I was like, what? I'm good at poems. What do you mean? I'm good at poems. But anyway, I sat down and I wrote this poem and I wish I still had it. And maybe I do somewhere. I think I still have the art voice somewhere. But I kind of made up this narrative 
that my dad and I had bonded over Van Halen, which I mean, my dad and I obviously bonded over music and it was an important part of our relationship. You know, my parents got divorced when I was young and I would be with my dad every Saturday and we would get in the car and we would listen to music, you know, and it was great to be able to bond over that. My dad, especially then and still today, he kind of just likes what he likes. So if you want to be with him, you got to get into that place, right? And rock music was a way I could do that. I don't know that it was Van Halen necessarily. It was more bands like Heart and Journey and whatever he liked the most. He's kind of got a little bit more of a soft rock. Well, maybe soft rock isn't the word. Van Halen's maybe a little too metal for him. Although I know he did like them. But anyway, I wrote this poem about my dad and bonding over Van Halen. And I won. And I won tickets to see that 2004 show. But look at Van Halen has always been a part of the music I love. I love Van Halen. I love both bands. And Eddie Trunk, who I mentioned off the top, uh, does a gimmick on his show where he does the Trunk 20s, where he asks for your top 20 songs from various bands, and one band that he did it for was Van Halen, and I made one, so I'm going to share it now. I maybe have shared it before, uh, but here's my top 20 Van Halen songs. At number 20, I had Oh, Pretty Woman. At number 19, I have Not Enough from Balanced. 18, Unchained. 17, When It's Love. Uh, 16, Feel Your Love Tonight. 15, And the Cradle Will Rock. 14, The Seventh Seal. Uh, 13 and 12, both from Four Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, Run Around, and then Top of the World. Number 11, Dance the Night Away. Number 10, their number one hit, Jump. Number 9, Panama. Oh, I love when uh, Dave starts talking in the middle there, and he reaches down in between my legs, ease the seat back. Uh, number 8, Best of Both Worlds from 5150. Number 7, Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do. Uh, the absolutely best song on balance. Uh, number six, Ain't Talking About Love. Number five, Humans Being. Uh, number four, the number one uh, Dave song on my list, I'll Wait from 1984. Uh, number three, Love Walks In. Number two, The Dream Is Over. And number one, Dreams from 5150. Eddie Van Halen is one of the greatest guitar players of all time. And I feel confident that that's not an opinion that I have to defend very hard. And being able to see Eddie Van Halen play so many of the songs from the list I just read, you know, was truly, you know, one of the honors uh, that I've been able to have as a music fan over the years. And while it's a shame that in the last 25 years, there's really only been three Van Halen albums, Balance, Van Halen 3, and the last record with Dave, which is really a lot of old songs that they kind of revived. Uh, but the music that Eddie left behind is as good as anyone. And I will be playing the music of Eddie Van Halen uh, for years and years and years. And I think of you, Wolfie Van Halen, and Alex Van Halen, and everyone who loved him, rest in peace, big guy. Yeah.
still gone.